0: first watch
1: hello welcome to an all-new episode of the first watch podcast i am zach and i'm here with cole how are you
2: i'm good i'm craving some french food maybe a took Mm. to the aquarium or even a toy store i don't know how about you
1: Say bonjour to Monsieur Incroyable for me. (laughs) Today, we're here to talk about our top 10 favorite Pixar movies. If you were tapped into this show last year, we wrapped up 2022 talking about our favorite Walt Disney animated features. I definitely recommend going back and listening to that. I think it's one of the best episodes we've ever put together. It was kind of the first big list episode Cole and I ever did together. So it was a real labor of love. And we knew that we had to close out this year by doing something similar. We'll get a little bit into our methodology of how we put our list together and those movies. But before we get there, as always, we caught up with a bunch of stuff because as Cole knows better than anybody, because he is a lucky little (laughs) so-and-so living out on the coast. (laughs) It's new release season. So we've been catching up on the end of 2023 as we move towards the new year, eventually doing our year-end wrap-up, which we'll be doing sometime in January. Before we get started, I'll go ahead and kick off with what I've seen. I finally got to catch up with the latest from Christian Petzold, A Fire, or as it's called in German, Groter Himmel which translates to Red Sky, which I thought was kind of interesting after our Miyazaki discussion, because I like Red Sky as a title about 10 times more than I like A Fire, which I think is a little bit...
2: It's more provocative.
1: Eh, It's okay. This is the second movie in a series that Petzold is making that are based on the classical elements. The last one was his film Undyne, which also starred Paula Beers. Well, you get to see this one early, right?
2: Yeah, I got lucky and got a screener from this courtesy of Whatever company that was, but yes.
1: Mm, And it just had its streaming debut on the Criterion channel. So I'm not sure if that means we're headed for like a Janus Contemporaries on this one. I think that would be a really good fit for them. This was an interesting movie. It tells the story of two men who go on a sort of working vacation. One of them is a student who's trying to build a photography portfolio so that he can get into school to continue to study art. The other is a published novelist who is working on his second book and has turned his manuscript into his publisher. But things are not going great for little Leon, who is maybe the most literally B character of the entire year. Just... (laughs) An utter sourpuss writer type who lets his own insecurities, hardships really weigh on him. And he has a very sour attitude. Mm -hmm. They are staying there with the character played by Paula Beers, who wasn't originally supposed to be with them. So the two men are sharing a room instead of staying in two separate rooms. They're finding it difficult to get work done. But Leon's friend is enjoying the socialization. There's also a, I'll call him a lifeguard, but the character actually corrects this in the movie. He's a rescue swimmer Mm -hmm. in the ocean who eventually develops a bit of a romance with Leon's friend. And it's just kind of about what it's like to be a third wheel, or even a fourth wheel, which doesn't even make sense with those numbers, but just what it's like to always kind of be on the outside of everybody else's social situation. Mostly due to your own shitty attitude. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I like this. I thought it was good. Petzold's Kind of a guy who I always think he writes and directs very intelligent movies, but they don't always really beach me very deeply. But I genuinely did like this character of Leon. I like how thorny and difficult it was to just spend time with him, make him empathetic at all. And I thought that it did a really good job. By the end, I was a little bit more curious what was going on than in the beginning. (laughs) And then it ends with him doing one of the most trashy things you can do, (laughs) which is sort of write a novel based exclusively around what the events of the movie were so it's kind of an interesting movie about creative types
2: never trust a writer
1: (laughs) (laughs) definitely never invite them to go on vacation Mm -mm. at least if you don't expect them to hold up in their room the entire time (laughs) hell no apart from that i did also get to catch up with a movie i've been anticipating by radu jude Do not expect too much from the end of the world. Radu Jude is an experimental Romanian filmmaker. Probably his biggest at this point would be Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, which came out a couple years ago, and is a movie about a lot of things, most of them relating to the pandemic era and the change that everything went through, through 2020, 2021, the year that movie was released. He's also done a number of documentary features or Films that kind of flirt with the more non-fictional side, which Bad Luck Banging also does. So this is a return to fiction for him. And it follows a production assistant named Angela, who works, I think it's for Romanian television, but she holds a couple of different jobs. And it follows her from the time that she wakes up at five in the morning, her mm-hmm. phone's going up, and her boss is telling her, hey, you got to go do this stuff, and you got to go do this stuff. And we follow her day as she drives around Bucharest in a van, going from person to person, and conducting interviews. The people that she's interviewing are workers who have been injured on the job and are either on disability, no longer working, some of them are bound to a wheelchair, one of them cannot speak. And she's performing these interviews on behalf of an Austrian conglomerate who is trying to use these real people to create safety videos to essentially say, And this is why you have to wear your helmet. This is why you have to follow the rules. This is why you can't drink at work. But over the course of the interviews, we start to unpack following safety protocols is only a very small part of what caused most of these accidents. Mm -hmm. In reality, most of it's caused by overwork, long overtime hours, insufficient lighting or safety protocols on the part of the business that create these unsafe environments. And we're comparing that against Angela's 16-hour workday where she's driving in traffic and having to do all these production assistant things. At the same time, Angela amuses herself by becoming a TikTok personality where she uses a filter to make herself look like a bald man with very bushy eyebrows, kind of like Andrew Tate. And she's very vulgar and crass and it's like a comedy routine that's meant to be an exaggerated version of Romanian masculinity that Angela also kind of uses to express her misgivings with the culture. Mm. So like a lot of Jude's other movies, it really is this like kaleidoscopic look into the modern world, TikTok, Minecraft, the COVID pandemic, it just and a million other things. He's our best modern issues filmmaker for me most other directors or writers would flub this extremely hard
2: he's the only person i would trust to make a movie about tiktok
1: there's also a few i won't spoil who they are but there's a couple names from german cinema who appears in this Mm. one performer and one director who play small but important roles and both of them made me like howl with laughter when they (laughs) both appeared so This is a very funny movie. It's a very interesting movie. It's close to three hours long, like a lot of his. You got to strap in and be willing to dig in to what his ideas are. Mm -hmm. But I think that he does a great job of giving you these characters and making things kind of funny and unpredictable, that it also works as pretty good entertainment. If you've not seen Bad Luck Banging, I would recommend that's a really good starting point for this guy. Mm -hmm. This is a good follow-up. I would say those two are probably his most accessible movies. Mm -hmm.
2: I'm going to probably catch up with that today.
1: And then just last night on movie, I caught up a buzzy new documentary that people have been talking about. This was initially released in Paris over in Europe last year in May and is just making its way stateside this year. And that is De Humani for Porous Fabrica, mm-hmm. which is a French language film that focuses on one particular intensive care unit in a trauma center in Paris. While you're watching the movie, you're observing scenes of surgery from the perspective of surgical cameras, often inside of people, while you are overhearing dialogue from the hospital workers talking about their surgeries, talking about the workplace. Interesting movie. Not one for the squeamish. I'm really glad that I ate dinner beforehand.
2: The scene that got me was the eyeball surgery.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, me too. Particularly when it starts poking it, it's doing some kind of cleaning thing on the outside. And then he starts talking to the guy. He's like, okay, can you still see? And he's like, yeah, three dots. And then you might notice that there are three lights reflected in his pupil. So it's like, oh, this dude's awake. And then all of a sudden it punctures into the iris. I was like, oh, Uh-oh.
2: Uh-oh. see, this is why I like to be unconscious for any kind of surgery.
1: Oh, yeah. This was interesting. For somebody that has almost no anatomical or physiological knowledge outside of one class I took in high school, who's not really interested in this side of the world, it was really jarring in some ways because there's almost no explanation as to what is going on mm-hmm. while you're watching it. Yeah, You can figure out that eye scene, they're clearly working on an eyeball. There's a point where they've done a mastectomy. That's where they cut off the breast for breast cancer, and so they're like, fingering apart the tissue and being like using a ruler to be like here's the tumor underneath the layers of skin you know so there's certain stuff that you can recognize and then a lot of it's almost abstract because you're just like inside somebody's lower intestine Mm -hmm. and there's not really a great deal of explanation as to why you just be watching like some metal pair of calipers like go in and clip some little fleshy membrane and pull it out
0: it gets
2: you real up close and personal with the intricacies of the human body
1: And the intricacies of the hospitals. Yes. Almost more of what the thematic focus seemed to me to be about.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: I think my favorite segment might have been when it was two surgeons and the two doctors and nurses, and they're arguing about overtime and getting surgeries completed. Yeah. And you're just staring at this guy's Genitals, yeah, they've been operating on it, and there's like a tube stuck up in, it uh-huh. and it's like that absurdity. Someone's just laid out on the table, and you're arguing about your overtime,
1: and it's a very sort of heated argument that you would have in the back of a restaurant. People would be like, "You need to keep it down so the customers can't hear you." Mm-hmm. While there's like a dick bleeding onto a blue tarp. <laughs> Sometimes the way the dialogue was reminded me of Marguerite Durah. like if you think of like India Song, where mm-hmm. you just overhearing a conversation that people are having. Additionally, I thought a lot about, because of the overtime stuff, a lot of the different surgeons and workers would be like, they treat us like robots, or I feel like a machine, or I have to distance myself from the human impact of what I'm doing because we work in an ICU. People only stay here for a couple of days. Lots of people die. We see the worst of the worst. There's a scene where they're poking into some dude's head using a little drill tool on his skull. Mm -hmm. And they will have like a green paper covers over his head that would cover over his body so that all the surgeon can really see is this little circle that they've got in the tarp so that they're almost looking at it like it's a literally at one point one doctor says it's like a game like a video game yeah and it's this sort of how you have to almost make it impersonal to be good at it because if i were looking at this and thinking about like oh there's a human being down there I might try to be too sensitive. I might not want to do this. I might not want to do that. And so it's this push-pull between trying to have the humanism of understanding that you do have a real patient, but also what it takes to not let that get too deep under your skin so that you can still do the job. And then the big one for me was a new release, which I just saw in theaters. And that is the latest movie from Hirokazu Kore-eda called Monster. Monster takes place in modern Tokyo. And we are with a single mother, played by Sakura Ando, who's just lighting it up this December, and her young son, who is like a grade schooler. The father is a former rugby player who died sometime before the movie started, so she's a single mother. And she's noticing some strange behaviors for him. For instance, at one point, he cuts his hair. And at another point, he doesn't come home from school right away. And she goes and she finds him walking around in a sewer with an injury to his ear. He's like bandaged up based on what the kid tells her. It seems like maybe he's being punished too severely or even abused physically Mm. by one of his teachers. And so the first segment of the movie, we're with Ando as she's trying to navigate that. But as we go along, we realize maybe there's a little bit more to what's going on. In this situation than what the mom is able to see from her outside perspective and so we start to see what the people in the school are seeing and then eventually we go deeper than that we go into what the kids are seeing Mm. and that's about as much as i really want to explain what's going on with the movie you've definitely seen other movies that do this probably the most classic example is rashomon where we shift in perspective Mm. these reset points in time and see the story again and again this one isn't necessarily about like the irreconcilability of perspective the way that Rashomon is. It's more just about how context changes what you see. Context changes how you interpret what's going on. This was an incredibly touching and beautiful movie like so many of Hirokazu's are. It's just a delicate drama. I think that it manages to really flesh out each and every main character, all of its side characters. The way that it does its recontextualizations never felt cutesy. It almost always felt powerful. When you would see some detail that you saw early in the movie, you see it come back up. It's like, oh, that actually really works. That actually really came together nicely. Some beautiful images in this, too. Some of the most like striking imagery that I can think of in any of his movies. Because, you know, you can almost, with these dramas, get a little bit deep into it's two people talking, it's two people's relationship with each other. But he does a beautiful job with certain close-ups, a beautiful job. There's this one particular where you're inside of a train car. If you've seen the movie, you'll know what this is about. Out in this wooded area in the mountains. And you're looking up from inside at this sort of sunroof as it's covered in mud. And there's rain coming down on top of it. And there's a character that's trying to wipe away the mud. Mm -hmm. You're seeing these little pins of light break through the darkness. Really gorgeous movie. I think that this is destined to be a movie that people maybe see later and then go like, damn, yeah, that was one of my favorites from this year. Just because it is, it's so focused on your experience with it and how your emotions and your reactions change and evolve over time mm. then i think it will be engaging to a lot of people even if you've never seen anything by the director before
2: awesome yeah that has been playing here for a little while so i'm gonna try to catch up with it sometime this
0: week
1: nice yeah i was really excited you know we got broker last year but broker was in that january type of zone mm-hmm. we didn't get it in december so it was really nice to get to go see this at an amc admittedly one farther away that i don't usually go to but it's one of your favorites it's like a restaurant amc <laughs> the table so you can love it (laughs) it's nothing like watching child abuse while you're eating nachos one
2: day we will be free of the kind of movie going (laughs) culture but unfortunately that's not this day over here on my end i've also been just going on a rampage trying to catch up with everything the first of which since we are talking about animation today pixar is part of the disney umbrella and the disney umbrella has pretty much failed on all ends this year yeah lucasfilm indiana jones was a disaster marvel had two different disasters this year and like one success
1: yeah with a big asterisk
2: the guy who made that doesn't even work for them anymore
1: right he literally works for like their rival yeah where he's floundering so far
2: honestly i think that whole thing's a setup basically aquaman is fucked yeah But the live action remakes this year, Little Mermaid barely broke even. It's the same story with Pixar. They had Elemental, which just barely avoided disaster,
1: had to leg out just to make money.
2: They also had the Haunted Mansion, which was another bomb. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, is anything going to go right for Disney this year? It's their 100th anniversary as a studio. Mm. They put all their eggs in one basket for an animated princess musical, which you'd think would work, right? Because that's like the thing they're known for.
1: First one of those since Moana?
2: Well, Frozen 2.
1: Ah, there you go. First new one. That's not like a sequel.
2: Yeah, so they decided to put all their chips in on Wish and it's not working out at all.
1: (laughs) We're going to have to do some crisis management for Ariana DeBose if this continues.
2: Yeah, it's bad. Wish is an animated musical set in the fictional Kingdom of Rosas, ruled by King Magnifico, who's voiced by Chris Pine, who has the ability to grant wishes. Now, the way that his kingdom operates, you make a wish on your 18th birthday. He takes that wish and keeps it in his castle, but you don't remember the wish, so that way you're not worried about achieving that wish in your lifetime. But if it's not granted, you're also kind of depressed because you didn't get your wish. So there's these hundreds and hundreds of wishes, but he only grants one a month in a big ceremony. It's insane, bizarre, but Asha, who's played by Ariana DeBose, is just turning 18. Her grandfather, who's turning 100 years old. And get his wish finally granted. When she goes to an interview to be Magnifico's apprentice, she gets to see the wishes and sees her grandfather's wish. And as it turns out, Magnifico will not grant most of the wishes because he wants to be in control of everything. And her grandfather's wish, which he just wants to, you know, play music for people, he says could be dangerous and overthrow Rosas. So that night, Asha makes a wish upon a star, as many, many a Disney character often does. But this time, the star comes down to Earth and starts following her around. This, like, adorable little plushy thing that was clearly designed to sell a million toys, but it's probably not even going to sell a hundred toys.
1: This seems a little bit overcooked on the conceptual level.
2: It's overcooked and undercooked at the same time, which is really bizarre.
1: The outside's burnt, the inside's frozen.
2: This whole thing ends up on a grand adventure to free all the wishes, give people their choices back. Disney's so mad that they don't own Wicked. (laughs) (laughs) This is like the upteenth fucking time they've made a movie that's so eerily similar to Wicked. It's just barely avoiding a copyright lawsuit. Even when she's talking about her interview to be an apprentice, you could easily picture her singing The Wizard and I.
1: Oz the Great and Powerful, that's the big one. Mm-hmm. Well, Frozen?
2: Also Adina Menzel?
1: Right, exactly.
2: Even Maleficent? Yeah. That twist on a classic villain. Cruella's got that twist on a classic villain.
1: And that's what I think Frozen is, too. Like, if you've read yeah. that fairy tale, the Snow Queen is the bad one. She's the villain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they not only make her sympathetic, she's practically the main character. They make her more like Ariel.
2: Mm-hmm. This film also does this odd thing with the animation where they look 2D mm-hmm. as characters, but They're in a 3D animated space, but they still move like a 3D character. Right. And it's just kind of bizarre to look at.
1: And the backgrounds are kind of 2D-ish too?
2: Yeah, a little bit.
1: Kind of flat backgrounds that they're moving through in three-dimensional ways.
2: It's like trying to blend together the last 100 years of animation technique for disney. yeah it's very odd i don't think they pull it off successfully ironically enough a very similar movie to this last year called push and boots the last wish yeah basically did this whole thing a lot better both in terms of the wishing plot and then the animation style the other big thing about this is that disney has been making animated musicals for 86 years right this has the single worst set of songs ever written for any one of those Jesus. There's not a single good song in the bunch. They were written by Julia Michaels, who is a pop songwriter. She's written songs for Justin Bieber, Demi Lovato, Selena Gomez.
1: So it's kind of like hook and chorus heavy.
2: Very. And in a bizarre way that just does not sound like it belongs in a Disney animated musical. For sure. People have been mocking that Chris Pine song for weeks, but it's like the only halfway decent song in the movie.
1: You know, Howard Ashman is like an impossibly high bar to clear. We all know this. We've seen Aladdin and we know this. But it seems pretty bleak that the only guy that they have got that has been anything for them has been Lin-Manuel Miranda.
2: And if you can't even match him, it's like, what are you even doing?
1: Yeah, tough.
2: There's one particular number. I don't recall the name, but it's like all the talking animals in the forest mm-hmm. about wishing and being happy and all that. There's a line in there where they say that we're all shareholders in the universe. Good Lord. And at that point, I wish... I wished that an asteroid would hit me and take out the theater. <laughs> garbage, garbage movie. Just feels like it was written by a robot, constructed by a robot. It just feels like the mandate was we need a new animated musical to celebrate 100 years. Mm-hmm. And this one's going down in flames.
1: Doesn't seem like they really put a lot of work into making a real world. And no real thought is being given to like the characters, the setting, or the story. Right. Which is where all this sauce has to actually come from.
2: It feels like a film that's just averse to any kind of emotion or conflict. Mm-hmm. You know, like I was showing you some of that earlier concept arc that I had seen. Where Looks gorgeous. It's going to be an evil king and an evil queen. So it's going to be like a happy, evil married couple. The star was going to be like a genie type character that Asha would grow romantically involved with.
1: Had a little bit of a princess of the frog look to the character designs.
2: It did, yeah. This was just an awful, miserable experience. By the time we got to making a joke about Mary Poppins, I felt like dying inside. (laughs) And then he follows it with a direct quote from Sleeping Beauty, and that's when I just felt like walking out.
1: Trying to center on wish is so stupid. Like It's part of Pinocchio. It's part of the story. A dream is a wish that your heart makes. Like Mm -hmm. It is baked into these other stories, and now you're just trying to use the basic concept and make a soup that is essentially all connective tissue. It's all cartilage. There's no Um, meat.
2: The references stand out to me because they're like the worst thing about it. Don't remind me of better movies.
1: Yeah, right. Shrek, but not funny.
2: Uh, God, that's, yeah, just about. But moving on from that corpse, I do want to talk about two better movies, both Oscar submissions for their home countries. Mm. The first of which is The Teacher's Lounge, directed by Ilker Katak. It's about this teacher, Carla Nowak, played by Leni Benish. She's a new teacher at the school. It's a middle school. She's been there for about a year and a half. And she's still like the wide-eyed idealist that she can genuinely make a difference in every kid's life. And there's a series of thefts happening at the school, and one of the Muslim students is suspected by the admin team. So they have to call in the parents, and that meeting goes as well as you can expect.
0: Yeah. Where's this set? It's
2: set in Germany, including a moment where the admin demands that the parents speak German and not Arabic, which, you know... (laughs) Not great, but the kid's innocent. And so Carla really wants to figure out what's going on. So she sets up her laptop and starts recording and leaves some money in her purse as a trap almost. And she thinks that she's doing this for the best. She could find whoever's doing this and try to convince them to give up their thieving ways. The problem is her camera captures what is possibly the school's secretary. And when she confronts the secretary about this, the secretary, Mrs. Kuhn, gets extremely upset, grabs her kid, runs out of the school. And everything devolves from there into this thorny, complicated mess of, you know, she may have been doing it, but you've recorded her privately. What's wrong with you? And now the other students are making fun of her son, even though he might have had nothing to do with it. So he's lashing out. And maybe my favorite scene for the movie, she goes for an interview with all the School journalists, So, you know, it's like a bunch of seventh and eighth graders demanding all kinds of answers out of her for what's going on. It's an extremely funny scene because these kids are like doing better journalism than, you know, most professional <laughs> ones now. Like, they just will not give yeah. up. <laughs> but the film, I thought, was a very good dissection of a school system, in particular, the power that adults feel that they wield, the way that kids lash out against that, and just that dichotomy of wanting to be a good person But getting broken down by that system the way that almost every single teacher does. The other film I want to bring up is Argentina's submission, The Delinquents. This is a heist movie about two bankers, one who's in his mid 50s. He decides that he's tired of working every single day for nothing. So he decides to steal exactly $650,000, which he calculates would be twice what he would be paid. If he worked every single day for the next 25 years, he goes up to one of his co-workers and says, hey, I have an idea. I have all this money and we could split it evenly. So that way we could both have the next quarter of a century off from work. If you hide the money and I admit to the crime that I did and go to prison for three years. So his coworker agrees to it. So he hides the money. The other guy goes to prison and the movie splits between the two narratives of these guys living out the next couple of years. Because one of them is in prison for a long time. The other person is going out and living his own life, enjoying the freedom that comes from that money. And it's a very long, very slow film. It's like arguably like the first slow cinema bank heist film. Yeah. (laughs) I found it to be a very clever, smart piece of cinema.
1: Got the trailer for this one a bunch of different times that Angelica. So Mm -hmm. I know that it played there, but it just didn't like the trailer seemed interesting. I think maybe the runtime just didn't quite. I wasn't yeah, I'm like, oh, gonna go, so go do this one. Yeah, sounds interesting though. You ever just like enter into an arrangement that seems unfair by design, mm-hmm. and then you have to deal with the fact that you did that.
2: Streaming on movie now for anyone interested. Oh, Nice. Also just recently caught up with American Fiction, a new film by Port Jefferson, which was a big hit at festivals Mm -hmm. and is gearing up for a good old-fashioned Oscar run. This movie stars Jeffrey Wright as Thelonious Monk Ellison, a novelist whose career has stalled because he writes good books, but they just don't sell. Unfortunately, he hears that his mom isn't doing too well. Her Alzheimer's is starting to get worse and worse. So he heads back home to Boston to help take care of her for a little while. Eventually, it becomes clear that she's going to need full-time care, but he doesn't have the money to help out. So he decides to write a Black novel. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying this in quotes because, you know, think of like all the art that's been made in the past like 20 years where Black artists get accused of making stuff for white people. Mm-hmm that's the exact kind of novel he writes. He calls it My Pathology, except it's spelled P-A-F-O-L-O-G-Y. And of course, this novel, which is about like a gangster living in the hood and running from the cops and all that, immediately becomes like a smash hit bestseller and he sells the movie rights to Hollywood and everything. And the movie about him dealing with this newfound success, even though he despises this fake novel that he wrote because it's not genuine. It's just writing to what white liberals want to hear. And also dealing with the complications of his family. His brother, played by Sterling K. Brown, who recently just ended his marriage because he came out of the closet, dealing with his mom's Alzheimer's. She's played by Leslie Uggams. Very lovely performance. And just really trying to navigate this new level of success while also becoming a bit of a sellout
1: a satire about the get the bag mentality
2: yes i just wish that it went further than it does it feels very pulled back in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. because it spends a lot of its best ideas in like the first half hour and the family drama is solid and i like everyone involved yeah i just don't think it really rises to the occasion that it could have been It could have been a lot more biting and incisive, you know, this white liberal culture that focuses on these kind of trauma stories just for the sake of representation.
1: It seems a little bit like it's trying to move in on that Sorry to Bother You, but not only is it a few years later, but it just doesn't seem as creative or as angry.
2: Oh, it's nowhere near as witty or hysterical as Sorry to Bother You, which is still like one of the funniest American movies of the last several years.
1: Just completely... (laughs) jaw-dropping <laughs> in certain <laughs> ways uh, i'm thinking of a specific scene but yeah oh
2: yeah i thought this movie was solid enough i liked it jeffrey wright is fantastic at it as that writer who's again on that i push away people because i'm this detached writer asshole guy yeah. a lot of great jokes about boston <laughs>
1: Not quite enough to win best film over the holdovers for the Boston critics. No, but
2: there's one very good joke about the gentrification of Dorchester that had me rolling on the floor. (laughs) Now, my last two films that I want to talk about today, we joke on here about me being able to see stuff ahead of time because of my location in Los Angeles, with entertainment hub of America. And of course, because of that, the film industry is here. You know, distributors sometimes like to play funny little games with the rest of the world.
1: They do. We're in Wonka Town, which as you've noticed, neither of us have seen.
2: People are telling me it's good.
1: I haven't seen Paddington or Paddington 2, so I don't feel like I need to pick up here where I left off there.
2: If it ends up being the Christmas Day movie, then I'll go see it. But like, Sure. But first one I want to talk about is right now in the middle of its one-week qualified run before it gets yanked from theaters to return on February 19th. So by the time it reaches Dallas, it'll probably have been a solid three months if I have seen this movie. Yeah.
1: 2024 movie.
2: IFC just keeps on fucking up. Yeah. But this film in particular is Taste of Things directed by Tron Anhung who made The Scent of Green papaya? Yep. And the film is about this relationship between Dodin, a fine gourmet who owns a big restaurant, now is retired, lives in a mansion, and Eugene, who's an esteemed cook and his personal cook. Dodin's played by Benoit McMill and Eugene's played by Juliet Panos, who actually used to be together in real life yep. and then separated, which I had no idea until after I saw this movie, which was insane.
1: Hanukkah crew, baby. Piano teacher X, code unknown, let's go. <laughs>
2: The chemistry between them is, like, off the walls, even now. Yeah. Like, all these years after being separated. The movie's set in 1885 in France, and oh. it's about this relationship between the two.
1: I didn't know it was a period piece.
2: The movie's about his reluctance to marry her, even though he clearly has feelings for her, but at the same time, she's starting to fall ill, which isn't great. And it's about the joy of cooking for someone you know, particularly for someone you love, and how intimate an act that can be. Sure. The first like half hour of this movie is just about this grand meal that she cooks for him and his friends who are visiting. She moves across the kitchen with the surgical precision. It's a kitchen that Nancy Myers would commit murder to have. <laughs> the 1800s version.
1: I'm suddenly so interested by the setting because the director's film that you mentioned, The Scent of Green Papaya, it's recreating Vietnam on a Paris soundstage. Mm-hmm. And it's like this whole world that you could just fall into that they've made for the movie.
2: This one's in a very similar vein of recreating like a moment in time. Mm, I love it. So you that. could travel back to almost all natural lighting, you mm. know, candlelight. But the most important thing is the food. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I was so hungry by the end of this. I could have eaten a horse.
1: I hear that it might be scaring off certain plant emoji, non-animal eaters <laughs> in our circle, in our sphere. <laughs>
2: That review is so funny. (laughs) Vegan Alerts, you made a work of art. This movie is basically like food porn in a way that hasn't existed since a movie I'll be talking about later.
1: Gotta do this one in the restaurant theater so you can have the big sloppy burger.
2: Oh, God. (laughs) I absolutely love this movie. It's not quite in my top 10 of the year, but it is very, very close to that. But this is an absolutely lovely movie, and I highly recommend seeing it whenever you can.
1: Yeah, I'm going to be putting it at the top of my 2024 <laughs> list, making some room for 2023.
2: <laughs> now, the last one I want to talk about, you know, we have a rule here. We got to talk about five-star I'm movies.
1: Bye. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> so again, because I'm lucky and I live in LA, we get stuff first. Sometimes we get it on 35 millimeter.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't really get that impatient. The fact that I have to wait a couple months for the taste of things, I'm like, that's okay. I'll watch it and enjoy it. I'll watch other stuff up until then. This has been my most anticipated movie since July. <laughs> <You're killing me.
2: laughs> I'll be on my, like round four by the time you get to it.
1: Oh my God. <laughs> This can't be like a round two, round three type of movie, or maybe it will be. I don't know.
2: Um, But yeah, so last night I saw the new film from Jonathan Glazer, Zone of Interest. This is a domestic drama about a military officer, Rudolph, and his wife, Hedwig. They're a family on the move. You know, they move into this one home next to Rudolf's job and they build it up. She builds a garden and a pool and a playground and all this stuff. And they just want the best life for themselves and for their multiple children. He's possibly called away. There's the threat of a transfer. And it's about, you know, hey, can we still preserve this beautiful life that we built for ourselves in this lovely home next to Auschwitz? Rudolf is Rudolf Hoss, who was the longest serving commandant of Auschwitz who was personally responsible for the deaths of at least two and a half to three million Jews. And that doesn't even include everybody else who was murdered at Auschwitz. I went into this knowing that it was probably going to be a disturbing experience, and it genuinely rattled me in a way that a movie has not in a long, long time.
1: Yeah. This is playing with the ideas of what Paul Schrader might call transcendental cinema, mm-hmm. whether you want to go with like Bursan, I just mentioned the Mikhail Hanukkah, the director of Code Unknown and stuff like that, where it's very observational, but the point is kind of the stuff that you can't observe, the things that happen off screen, mm-hmm. what are the characters looking at? What is the world that they're living in?
2: The film focuses on their domestic life. And so as, as such, you really don't see anything from inside the camp. There's no Schindler's List moment of dragging someone off the train and into the gas chamber, except it's not the gas chamber. Everything comes in these quiet moments. It's a wheelbarrow of clothes being brought to the house for Hedwig to pick through. And then you realize where those clothes came from. One of their sons staying up late in the middle of the night with a flashlight, except he's not looking at comic books or anything. He's looking at a collection of gold teeth. And the movie just continuously keeps you within their world. Actually, the way that this was shot, a lot of it came from closed circuit security cameras that were set up throughout the home to kind of give you like this almost reality TV experience. Harsh white angles that just keep you contained to the space. You have to rely on the sound mix. So the sound mix of this movie, Johnny Byrne, who did the sound mix for multiple Yorgos films, including Four Things, The Favorite, Lobster, Mm. also did the sound mix for Under the Skin. Most critically, he did the sound mix for Nope.
1: Oh, that's cool.
2: And the sound mix of this movie plays with human screams and gunshots in a way that will genuinely haunt you.
1: If you go back to our Nope episode, I compared that scene where they get ingested to under the skin. That's fascinating. I had no idea that there was an actual connection there.
2: Imagine that audio for an hour and 45 minutes. Combined with, you know, like the birds and the bees and the flowers and the la, 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 la. And the mica. Oh, oh God. Not to give away too much, but it sounds like a Gregorian chant from hell. This movie has both the boldest opening and maybe the boldest ending of the year. A genuinely terrifying movie that invites you to explore the idea of Hannah Arendt came up with, you know, the banality of evil. Right. But it also takes that and it twists it and it makes you really think, were they just banal? You know, and just following orders? Mm. Or did they actually enjoy what they were doing? Rudolph's played by Christian Friedel, who was in Hanukkah's The White Ribbon. Hedrick's mm. played by Sandra Hulo, who, you know, was just having one hell of a year.
1: She's currently my favorite lead actress for the year, for Anatomy of a Fall.
2: She's also incredible in this, but in a much more caustic, yeah. vicious way.
1: Kind of sinister. She's got a little bit of a sinister vibe in Anatomy as well, but mm-hmm. that movie's like playing against that this one seems to be playing into it
2: this one's like she's a snake I mean, i could get why some people might want to pan this because it's like oh how dare you focus on the evil of it
1: that's been the year
2: but i truly think that this might be the best film about nazism since the damned
1: yeah wow that's really big praise since we've mentioned his name a couple times at even schindler's list it really feels like it was concocted in a sense i mean it's based on a novel which has its own properties. That yeah. novel's somewhat controversial.
2: Yeah, loosely, because it didn't like specifically name Rudolf Hossip. used like a pseudonym for him.
1: This, I think, feels like it was built around the critiques that Hanukkah leveled on Schindler's List with, like, Shadapatow yes. and the imagination of John Krasinski. <laughs> Where he's talking about, this goes back all the way to like Cahiers and like the movie Capo, how you can't really just have actors portray the Holocaust victims, not really, because they never are going to compare to something like Mm -hmm. Night and Fog, where you see the actual results of the starvation and these bodies wasting away, putting makeup on somebody to make them look like, oh, they're starving, oh, they're dying. It just doesn't have the same effect. It has this sort of remove. So this feels like it's almost intellectually built around letting that part exist only in your imagination Mm -hmm. your understanding that all of us would be bringing into this movie yeah
2: a flat-out masterpiece and one of the most disturbing things you'll ever watch
1: Really great way to prime us for a Pixar conversation. Yeah. <laughs> and uh,
2: when is this playing for you again?
1: It's either January 5th or the week after on the 12th.
2: <laughs> Good luck with that.
1: We got a trailer for it in front of Monster, which was at an AMC. Mm. So I believe it will be playing at some AMC locations here.
2: That just feels wrong.
1: Using my AMC A-list to go watch the new Blazer.
2: It's playing here at the Vista, which is where I saw it, on 35mm. And then it's also playing at the AMC Century City. So it's like, go to the mall, go see it in Prime, which has subwoofers under the seat. you know, So that way you can hear like the screams of the camp even more clearly.
1: Emanating from under you. While
2: you're sipping on an $8 soda. Heavens.
1: The sort of inherent crashiness of the movie theater <sighs> experience sometimes. Yeah, I'm really curious how this is going to fit alongside what I see is the year's kind of big two with Oppenheimer and Killers of the Flower Moon, because all three of them take that specific idea. Here are the Americans that made the bomb to drop on Japan. Here are the white settlers in Oklahoma who are tormenting the natives. And then here are the Nazis running their lives.
2: Zone of interest and in Killers of the Flower Moon are toe-to-toe for me as like film of the year.
1: Glazer is a thrilling director to me. This is only his fifth film, obviously his first in 10 years since Under the Skin, which is we did an episode on our favorites of 2013, and that was the number one on our list. So, you know, just fucking, will Spike Jonesy please make a Uh, fucking movie? I don't know. Anyway, we got Miyazaki back after 10 years. We got Glazer back after 10 years. (laughs) I don't know. What are we doing?
2: Starring a Babylon,
1: (laughs) where he is the clear, obvious highlight. But that's, you know, that's another thing. So, On to the main event, from Jonathan Glazer's new Holocaust movie to the wonderful world of Pixar. Today, we are, as I mentioned, talking about our top 10. So I'll give you a little bit of a breakdown of the methodology. Basically, Cole made a top 10, I made a top 10, and working from the tops of our list, our favorite movies, we built a unique set of 10 movies to talk about today. So I think we'll go ahead and start off with our honorable mentions. Did you have any that you wanted to shout out?
2: The main one I want to shout out is A Bug's Life, Mm -hmm. just because I wore that VHS tape out. Endlessly rewatchable, super funny, well-crafted, not quite the emotional heights of the studio or anything, but just a well-constructed movie.
1: I have two thoughts on A Bug's Life, maybe more than that, but I'll stick to two. One of them is that it's a really interesting visual ambition upgrade from the original Toy Story. Mm-hmm. Lots of plastic textures, geometric circles, squares, cubes, spheres. With A Bug's Life, you immediately get into translucent leaves and strange organic forms that really make it bold, and you can start to see the growing ambitions of Pixar as they would explode and dominate, especially from a technical perspective, CG animation, mm-hmm. all the way up until kind of the current day. Regardless of how we talk about their current output, I think that they remain strong on that front.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: The other Bug's Life thing is Just I watched this a lot as a kid, too, and it it just kind of faded. Of all the movies of their early era, almost all of which I love, this is kind of the one where I go back and I'm like, this is cool. I like this. It's nice. Kind of a little Seven Samurai thing going on. (laughs) Silly little clown bugs. Good voice performances. Funny movie. Julia Louis-Dreyfus is like the princess in this. (laughs) Dennis Leary is like a ladybug. Keeps getting misgendered. The one for me, with any of these episodes where we do a top 10, I start thinking about the people who are going to be listening to it going, wait, what do you mean? turning red wasn't in your top 10 or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, I'm Mm -hmm. thinking about what missed our cut, and I think the biggest one that is up high on my list would be Toy Story 3 from the year 2010. That came out the first year that I was in college, and is the final installment of the Toy Story trilogy. Well, there's a fourth one, but at the time, (laughs) it seemed to be the final installment of the Toy Story trilogy, where Andy goes off to college, leaves his toys behind, and I think that it's a really interesting inflection point Mm. of the idea that The Pixar canon is very millennial, in a sense. And then Toy Story 3 being like, and then the main character grew up, left home, and was an adult. So that movie has always seemed to be, to me, for people my age, even people a little bit older than me, because of those themes. And it also creates a cutoff point. I would put the cutoff point either in 2008 or 2010, where they've had to evolve and figure out, how do we move on past this millennial audience? Do we just continue to throw them a bone, try to get 30-year-olds watching Pixar movies? Or how do we get the next generation of kids into these? But Toy Story 3 feels like the cap of a certain portion of their history.
2: Absolutely, especially in contrast to what followed it the year after.
1: Is that Cars 2?
2: Good old Cars 2 with Larry the Cable Guy screaming and set off for two hours.
1: Yeah, the Mobile. We'll get more into the Toy Story movies and our overall feelings on that series, I'm sure. Oh yeah, I would probably put this as my second favorite of the bunch, uh. mostly just because the ending really fucking feels like taking a shovel to the head. <laughs> <laughs> that almost becomes a Pixar trope through these years. It's like, what if we have the most heartbreaking ending in a movie?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's practically almost advertised. Like, oh, here's the moment that's going to make you cry. It's almost become a bit of a joke. I do like choice for 3 quite a bit. I think it's maybe the least interesting out of the Four.
1: Ooh, oh you'd put four over it too
2: not that i would say four is better but i think four is a more interesting place to end on
1: mm, i could see that when i originally saw three back in 2010 mm-hmm. i liked it but i felt it was a little bit too much of a rehash of the ideas of two yeah. and what it means for woody to move on for andy and all that stuff it does feel like it runs that back what i think helps is that it feels like such a balanced idea of like a pixar adventure movie Mm -hmm. all this stuff in the kindergarten place
2: oh the prison escape is fantastic
1: lots of great perspective shots and you can really just see one of the things that i think is true of the toy story movies just talking three and four specifically too is that those movies are almost like taking a biopsy of what i was saying like the bleeding edge of animation technology Mm -hmm. for all four of those movies with 4, you know, the big thing was that cat, where the rendering of the cat compared to, like, the dog in the original Toy Story, for instance, where it just looks like you could pick it up and pet it.
2: Right. I think part of it just might have also been overexposure because Toy Story 3 was truly inescapable back when they came out.
1: I think there's a little bit of sequel stuff with Pixar, too. Like, you mentioned Cars 2 already. Mm -hmm. So much of the beauty of the early days of the studio is about these new original ideas, great new characters, great new worlds. It's a little less interesting when they're making sequels and prequels yeah it just doesn't really quite stack
2: and then we got toy story 5 coming down the barrel
1: inside out to next year it's like <laughs> 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 anyway on to the list starting with the movie that i've got in fifth the debut feature by one of my favorite pixar writer directors a guy who's going to come up a few times today pete doctor and that is monsters inc The story of a couple of friends, Pixar's own Bert and Ernie, Pixar's Abbott and Costello, James P. Sullivan, a scarer at Monsters, Inc., and his partner, best friend, Mike Wazowski, who is like his admin slash hype man. They live in a world called Monstropolis, which is a fantasy world full of grotesque beasts, monsters, little lizards, Godzillas, furry, terrible claws teeth. And they work at a company that distributes power, electricity to the whole city, which they get by scaring children. They use these doors, which act as portals to the closets of kids on Earth. They do their thing. The kids scream. And we harvest up the shrieks of innocent children all around the world to power the city. Eventually, this comes to a head because Sully, who's voiced by John Goodman, is really the pride of the company. He's their top scarer to the chagrin of Randall, who's played by <laughs> Steve Buscemi. A little big Lebowski reunion for those two. <laughs> There's also an energy crisis in this town. Kids, they're just not scared the way that they used to be anymore. And so it's getting harder and harder to meet the quotas.
2: They're up too late watching more movies on TV.
1: <laughs> so they develop a plan between the lead of the company and Randall which leads to a little girl who enters through her closet door into the world of monsters after hours, and suddenly now Mike and Sully have to take care of her, which is a problem because in this world, humans are considered toxic and dangerous to monsters. This is just like colorful adventure, great action, great comedy. Down the line, banger, I
2: think. Yeah, very well made movie. Again, they were taking more of those animated risks because, you know, they had to animate a human who wasn't going to be terrifying in the way that, like, <laughs> the humans in Toy Story are because let's be sister. real. Yeah. They have not aged well. But also, just like Ferg, Sully's a big, fluffy guy with a lot of fur on him. That was a challenge in and of itself.
1: I've always considered this to be the funniest Pixar movie, which I think really has a lot to do with that lead duo of Goodman and especially Billy Crystal. Mm hmm. Would later go on to do How's Movie Castle a bit later in yeah. that decade. But it's just like so much of it's based on their chemistry, their humor. There's so many greats. Put that thing back where it came from, or so help
2: me. <laughs> I mean, even down to the side characters, the comedy is great. You know, like, Mazowski, you didn't file your paperwork yeah, last night. <laughs> Just fantastic world building, which is something that Pixar is well known for. Mm-hmm. But creating Monstropolis and Monsters Incorporated and the Scare Factory, even down to Carey House and, you know, the sushi restaurant. The level of detail is just so impressive.
1: It's interesting to compare this one after Up and Inside Out. There's kind of a new perception that I have of Pete Doctor, what he does, what he's interested in, what he brings to these movies. And... This feels a little like an outlier in some ways because it is so much more the comedy. Maybe mm-hmm. because it's his first movie, it feels a little bit more integrated into Pixar and a little bit less his creative ideas. Right. At the same time, something that frustrated me around 2020 when Luca came out, people were like, ooh, this is like Pixar's take on a Ghibli movie, which has never really squared with, like, in my opinion, what Ghibli movies are actually like. There are some of them that are very placid and calm, but the best one is Spirited Away which is a movie about a little girl in a pink outfit Mm -hmm. who traverses from the real world into a world of like spirits and monsters where it's like a workplace. Yeah. Spirit Away, Monsters, Inc., which I believe come from the same year and were, I don't think they were nominated for the Oscar because I think Monsters, Inc. was one year before.
2: Yeah, Monsters, Inc. was nominated for a one, the first winner.
1: Against Shrek. Shrek
2: won and then Spirit Away was the next winner.
1: But I think right there you can tell that this is a guy who loves Hayao Miyazaki and has a lot of similar ideas to him. Escaping into the fantasy world, we just did our episode on how do you live slash the boy and the heron. Yeah. Sometimes people critique this as a trope, like using your imagination to be like, what if the monsters all worked at a business? You know, mm-hmm. like you were saying in Wish, we're all shareholders of a dream. There's a certain degree to which that could be the case here. But ultimately, Monsters, Inc. does such a good job with the corporate comedy. Yeah. Mike not turning in his reports or like, The 2319 gags where like every (laughs) few minutes, a bunch of people in hazmat suits are like breaking into the windows and shaving people down.
2: I love the 2319 joke.
1: There's such a level of absurdity while still being very heartfelt. Mm -hmm. That's where this identity starts to take off. And it's been there from the beginning. But this has such a sweet, heartbreaking ending, rebuilding the door. Yeah. That final line where it's just boo, the little girl saying kitty just makes Mm. me choke up a little bit. Like. (laughs) That's going to be a common thread for some of the movies today, so prepare for that. (laughs) But yeah, this is a good one. It's simple stuff. I think the one other thing that I always think about when I rewatch this is that the doors becomes such a cool and creative Hmm. way to show the passage between one world and another. That connects a little bit with Boy in the Heron, which I was just mentioning, because they use doors there too. But each door is the door of a child, real world. So it might be like a white door with little pink flowers on it for a little Mm -hmm. girl's room. And they're all stacked up on these rails, almost, where Mm -hmm. it's like a transportation system, like a dry cleaning kind of shop. But there's these great action set pieces where they're like riding around on them and they're doing like a chase. There's a lot of thrills. It's just very elemental, good animated filmmaking for families. This feels like something that should be infinitely replicable, but has turned out to not be. Mm -hmm. So, in a way, just that basic level of this is really solid starts to feel special.
2: This is one of the first like movie going experiences that I can clearly remember being in the theater and actively enjoying it.
1: This and Toy Story two which was in 99 would have been like the two of these that i can really remember seeing in theaters earliest great score very earworm and it's got that cool opening title sequence Mm -hmm. where everything's in 2d it's like these little paper puppets dancing around very clever very cute very wholesome kind of on the lower end of my top 10 i think i probably put this fourth among all the doctor movies Mm. but it's a hit
2: yeah no it's a great one so for my number five, we're actually going from one P- Doctor movie to the next. That's right. The next film we directed. Yep. My number five is Optimus. Which is about Carl Fredrickson, who is this cranky 78-year-old man who lives in his colorful little house in a big city, which is surrounded by all these skyscrapers and stuff that have developed up over time. And he's never gone on an adventure. He's never explored the globe, even though he and his wife Ellie really wanted to, as you find out over the course of the movie's first 10 minutes, which have been dissected by everyone on this planet for the way that it presents an entire lifetime of romance and love and eventual heartbreak when one of them passes away. I mean, what can I add to what everyone's already said? It is just that good a sequence.
1: It is. I will poke a little bit of a hole because I do think it's a commonly cited thing that that opening 10-minute montage is so good and so impactful that it overshadows the rest of the movie. And I have never really felt that to be the case.
2: No, me neither.
1: In fact, there's a really specific emotional payoff to that montage Mm -hmm. when he goes through the scrapbook a bit later in the movie. And I mean that shit just ruins yeah him. it wouldn't be complete if we didn't have an adventure that took us to a moment with the payoff to that montage right that's really where i started to admire how much pete doctor put into his character writing
2: Carl decides he's gonna go off the paradise falls and he has a very interesting way of getting there yeah <laughs> they're gonna tear down his house because he got into a fight with one of the construction workers
1: it's kind of like the last house on a block full of skyscrapers at this point.
2: So he gets a ton of balloons and he unleashes them all and lifts his house off the ground high, high, high up into the sky and is headed for Paradise Falls, which is where they always wanted to go, you know, saved up money for it, but would have to spend it on emergencies every single time. And it turns out he's not alone. There's a wilderness explorer named Russell, persistent little eight-year-old chubby kid who just wants to get his final badge so that way he could be the complete wilderness explorer and... And so they head off to South America, and they get involved with another explorer who Carl admired for a long, long time, Charles F. Muntz, voiced by Christopher Plummer. And it turns out Charles might not be such
1: a great guy. Never meet your heroes.
2: Mm-hmm. In particular, there's this crazy bird that looks like a emu mixed with an ostrich and a chucan if the rainbow threw up on it <laughs> named Kevin that he's been hunting after for years. And so it's this adventure of keeping Kevin safe while also trying to figure out what it means to go out and live life and have an adventure, even when the person that you wanted to do this most with has passed on. That's right. And there's also the most adorable dog in all the movies, Doug, who's voiced by Bob Peterson, who has a special collar that lets him talk. What I admire most about it is that most animated movies with a talking dog would just have like a bunch of bad jokes about, you know, like the dog licking himself.
1: And there's a couple where it's like squirrel.
2: That's a good joke. And then it's also, I was hiding under your porch because I love you.
1: They do a good job of writing the dogs as dogs, mm-hmm. where the things that they think and say actually feel dog-like, particularly Muntz, has this whole army of them. They're all obeying the alpha because he's the dominant one as dogs do. Lots of fun stuff. That part of it's a little bit frivolous for me. The months and the dogs thing. It's a weird movie. And this will come back up in other doctor stuff is like the plot of this does not really mean anything to me. The fact that they're going to South America and there's like this adventure guy doing all this stuff doesn't Mm -hmm. mean anything because this is a movie about these characters, how they come together. The adventure is a process that helps them to do that, that helps them to see more eye-to-eye yeah. between these two generations. And that's what makes it such a boob
2: thing. Yeah. It's just an old-fashioned pulpy adventure in a way that I really appreciate, Yeah, while also having that deep emotional core of that central relationship, even though she's dead like 10 minutes into the movie.
1: This came out the year I graduated high school, 2009. And it instantly vaulted up to being like my favorite or co-favorite, Because it just was so delicate and so emotional in a way that I can't really think of any other, especially prior to that point. I can't think Mm -hmm. of too many other emotionally driven animated films for kids. When I say future, one of the things I'm referring to is the fact that Toy Story 3 would be the next year. And would kind of solidify that for most people. But for me, we have a little bit of a difference of opinion. I've already brought up Miyazaki. We have a difference of opinion on Howl's Moving Castle. One of the things that accounts for my love of that is that he elected this old anime visionary, elected to basically make the main character of that movie an old woman for the vast majority of it. It's a young woman in the body of an old woman, but it's an old woman. I think UP arguably takes that even further just by having this nonagenarian geriatric main character. Yeah. And then giving him what I think is one of the most subtly beautiful arcs about what it means to move on, even if you feel like your life is already over. They're still alive, and there's still people who can benefit from your experience and mm-hmm. your love and your friendship. I've also always really been moved by Russell's arc and the way that he's hunting for the acceptance of his father, who's not even in the movie, mm-hmm. displacing that onto this other role model. The thing with the grapes soda sort of tap at the end, I'm just like, all right, I'm fine. Uh, I'm turning my television off. <laughs>
2: And a lot of the emotional power also comes from the score by Michael Giacchino. Uh, it's that love theme. that dun 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 dun.
1: He's such an icon for this company.
2: We'll be bringing him up multiple times, I'm sure.
1: He is a definitive aspect in the same way that Joe Hisaishi is for Ghibli. Mm-hmm. And I think that you could make a case that these two companies, at least at their highest levels, have a lot of similarities with each other.
2: I think you could also argue they're having the same struggle now.
1: Mm hmm. How do we move on from our initial success?
2: How do we foster the next generation, which it turns out, whoops, we failed to do that.
1: Up is an interesting one to me because it falls within the two years that I listed as like the cutoffs, 08, 2010. As 09, this is a movie where me, a millennial, is graduating high school and seeing this movie, confirming that yes, Pixar is for millennials. But to me, the characteristics of this do show a way to move forward, which is just embrace who your characters are, mm-hmm. and tell a story about them. And if that is good enough, it will work. There's a reason why for me, in this current decade 2020s, Pete Docter is the only writer-director who's really made a movie that I would say that I love mm. in this period, which we can debate a little bit about. Yeah, Because I think that he is just an interesting and captivating artist. I don't know that he's ever going to be the kind of guy that's going to bring people into the tent, Because he's also maybe the biggest sap (laughs) working for the company. His movies are all about the emotion.
2: I think his movies have like the most obvious emotional moments, but they do work. But Up is an incredible, fantastic movie. If I had seen this when I was younger, I probably would have loved it even more. Because I was like a couple of months away from turning 12 when it came out. Got it. Yeah. But if I was like five when I saw it, I would have eaten it up even more. What are some of your childhood faves?
1: For me, I saw this movie the year that I graduated high school. Mm-hmm. A lot of Pixar stuff, you know, you're talking about being 12, 13, 14, and that's about the age I was when a lot of these big ones were coming out, like Incredibles and stuff. I was mm-hmm. in eighth grade already. Yeah. So a lot of these don't really strike as childhood. I would say, you know, it's the first three, Toy Story, A Bug's Life, and Toy Story 2, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Those are the ones that came out when I was the youngest. But the first one that I think that I really gravitated to in a serious way was Finding Nemo, Mm. which would have been more like 11 or 12 years old. It was maybe one of the first movies that ever made me think about what it meant to be a technical achievement with the animation and the water and the lighting. You know what kind of struck me when I was a kid was they used to have these promos that would take you behind the scenes of how these movies were made. Oh, yeah. Pixar always had this emphasis on, you know, they were, Basically, owned by Steve Jobs and an offshoot of Apple. It's always been a hugely technological company. And in those early days, the late 90s, early 2000s, they loved to bring you behind the curtain, show you mm. how things were being put together, how decisions were being made. And it was a really exciting thing for me as a young person. Any for you other than Bugs Life?
2: There's a difference enough in our ages where basically all of Pixar's golden era run was right smack in the middle of my childhood. Mm-hmm. When Finding Nemo came out, I was five years old and like immediately the target of all the campaigning for that movie. Yeah. That one I really loved. I loved The Incredibles. I loved the Toy Stories. I just basically loved everything all the way up to 2010. Yeah. And getting to experience that era as a child was definitely special.
1: Those first few. Were the ones that i remember owning on vhs mm. sometimes you remind people be like yeah no bug's life was a vhs movie, <laughs> clamshell videotape rewind and a little bit mm-hmm. probably some of the last new release vhs's that i ever owned and watched mm.
2: that was what the last vhs was 2006 i think i think that's right i think cars was actually like the last pixar film to get mm. a vhs release
1: cars was like officially and a good example of what we're talking about where i was like I'm too old for this. And Mm -hmm. so much of what has made Pixar click and endure in my millennial comments is that they were built around that idea. Disney acquired this company in the 2000s, as we know. Eventually, they would also go on to acquire Marvel and Lucasfilm. And the reason why they got all three, boom, 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 is because Disney does not sell to boys. Mm -hmm. And Disney has never sold to teenage boys or adolescent boys. Whereas this catalog, this shit is Made for a 12 to 15 year old boy, like in a way that very, very few other collections of movies ever would be. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's kind of their identity. That's always been how I've engaged with them. Those early days, man, the first decade plus of this company's history is just unreal, loaded with quality.
2: It's insane how they pulled it off.
1: To me, one of the things about the director who we've now talked about twice, Pete Doctor, really sticks around. I think that he makes family movies for all ages, but up 2009, Inside Out 2015, Soul 2020. These are all movies that I saw when I was pretty much an adult. And I kind of think his movies work better if you're an adult, or at least if you were to see up as a kid and then see it again when you were 20, 25, 30 mm-hmm. years old, it's going to mean entirely new things to you. Right. Because you will have had some of those experiences like you see in that montage. Right, exactly. Perhaps the best representation of this, although there's some complications, is the movie that I alluded to. We're talking about our third Pete Doctor movie in a row here. We're going to have to take a little bit of a break after this one, I think. And that is Soul from 2020. The story of a music teacher named Joe Gardner, who lives in New York City. He's voiced by Jamie Foxx, and he's not satisfied. He loves music. He seems to love kids, kinda, but he really wants to be a jazz pianist, a dream which he has not achieved in his life, even though he is a middle-aged adult man. But One day, he does get the opportunity to go and play for a local band whose pianist has been, I think he's like sick or just unable to perform for some reason. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, he falls down a manhole and dies. And he goes to the World Between Worlds where he sees a big staircase leading to a place called the Great Beyond, an abstract representation of heaven. And he decides, no, (laughs) I'm leaving and manages to fall, find his way to a different place called The Great Before, where all the souls of all the human beings that are born on Earth begin before they start their lives down with us here on the Blue Planet. It is a story about Joe trying to get back to Earth so that he can perform his show that night, and also defines a soul who's voiced by Tina Fey, has not yet, in all of the time that they have been in The Great Before, gone to Earth yet to be born. They eventually take a trip on Earth together where the soul ends up in Joe's body, Joe ends up in the body of a cat, there's some shenanigans, and it's all about life. It's all about living and the small little bits that make up what your experiences on Earth are. Mm -hmm. It's another one where like, plot of this, I feel like I've been talking a lot about what the concept is, but the plot of it is so much less important than the relationship between these two characters and the smallest little moments of detail that are quite beautiful and serene. I think on a written level, some of this movie kind of comes off like a classic Pete Doctor fantasy world, real world, kind of kids' movie. But then the ideas of it are about like what it means to be alive Mm -hmm. and to see your life from an outside perspective. And how does that change the way that you feel? How does it change the way that you express yourself? And I just find this to be a really beautiful movie. I have issues with it more than i do with maybe any of the other pete doctor movies that we've talked about mm. but it comes together really strongly in the visual and it really comes together strongly in just its collection of ideas and moments and to me is probably the best pixar movie of this decade so far against like luca turning red all that stuff Like year <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: when this one came out and this is a movie i'd like But it definitely has its problems. When it came out, it was released on Christmas Day of 2020 on Mm -hmm. Disney Plus as, you know, like a gift for families. It was part of that same marketing push of Wonder Woman 1984.
1: Onward also got this treatment a little earlier in that year.
2: Yeah, because Onward opens in theaters. Mm -hmm. And then the next weekend, it was the apocalypse. I think the discourse around both movies maybe got a little bit ridiculous because everyone's stuck at home on Christmas and everyone's just watching these and going to town on each other. Part of the big thing about Soul it was that um, your first black protagonist and he's barely in his body for the movie. He's like this little blue blob and then you put Tina Fey in his body. Right. Same discourse that popped up when Disney released The Princess and the Frog.
1: Yeah. Without wanting to talk over anyone's Real concerns about that. I also feel like that's just an overcooked critique. I don't really think it holds that much water because let's say that the leads of this movie were not Jamie Foxx and Tina Fey, but were the leads of Finding Nemo, Albert Brooks and Ellen DeGeneres. Mm-hmm. We might have our issues with Ellen DeGeneres these days because mm. that's what they're doing with Tina Fey. They're trying to do Dory again, basically. Yeah. You know, here's this comedian. But you would never think like, oh, Albert Brooks is a cat for this whole movie. The issue is because. It is the first black character that they've done. At the same time, in the movie Inside Out, Riley, who is the main character of that film, is not on screen for most of it either, because we're inside her brain with her emotions. Mm. So it's something that I think is Pete Doctor, something that I think is Pixar, it's something that I think is animated movies. It's like Eddie Murphy voices a donkey for like 11 Shrek movies. There's nothing problematic about it. It's a cartoon character.
2: And it's telling that they also did put in an effort to handle this more carefully. You know, they brought in Kemp Powers as a co-director.
1: Who just co-directed across the Spider-Verse this year.
2: Yes. He was the first one to be brought in and said, hey, there's a lot of problems here. So he helped them to correct course to avoid a disaster.
1: Which it could easily do. I think that the portrait of the community that Joe lives in is actually quite beautiful. It's quite moving. Yes. Yes. He has a conflict with his mother that I think is somewhat similar to the movie Coco. Mm -hmm. The character wants to be a musician. The parents don't really want him to do that. Mm -hmm. But it's much more thoughtfully done here, in my opinion. It's more nuanced. It's more realistic. The more awkward element is that in order to get Joe on the other side of this fantasy world setup, they do kill him, which I think is a little bit of a mistake. Because it leads you to thinking that this is a movie about death. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, that's just not what this movie is. And I could see how that disconnect could make the ending of this. Not really click for you. Mm.
2: It's got its problems for sure, but beautifully designed. Mm. In particular, I love the look of the great before. Yeah, and the administrative team up there who are oh, all yeah. like these geometric lines that look flat, but they still have this glow to them, and they move around in this really fascinating way. Compared to you know the CG realism of modern Pixar,
1: that is an interesting note for Pete Doctor. One which I will bring up a little bit later on in this episode more extensively. Mm. Some of the abstractions going on in Soul here almost look more like the films of Don Hertzfeld, the experimental animator, than they do like Pixar. Oh, yeah, absolutely. When things just dissolve into black and white lines of the screen, mm-hmm. just kind of like yeah. erupting. Great music. This was scored by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Mm-hmm. Typical David Fincher collaborators that did right. two scores that were nominated that year, Soul and Bank.
2: And they won for this one, which was correct.
1: I think Bank's score really good. I don't know. This is more in their wheelhouse. I yeah. think I would probably agree that it's better, but uh, I'm just
0: joking.
1: but yeah, it's a strange movie. I've already teased that when Luca came out, I think that a lot of people use Luca as a way to shade Soul's conceptual design to be like, isn't it just better to have these little Italian boys running around? If we don't really have that much of a plot because the plot is so mechanical. In a way, mm-hmm. it's just yeah. here to get you from point A to point B, so that we can explore these different ideas. And this is probably the Pete Doctor movie where that balance is the most awkward for me.
2: But it's also the most heady of his movies. Like there's the most like ambitious ideas going on.
1: I agree. One thing that I will just quickly add to that is, for as much as I like his abstract world in this, the realization of New York, I think, is even better. The actual real world, the way that it's using sunlight and all these different things, and it's because in the abstract world nothing is anything everything is like floaty and weightless but you get down here mm-hmm. and the little helicopter seeds coming off of the trees are just like so delicate and so beautiful so yeah. well done
0: i
2: think it's a deeply fascinating movie especially for a studio that makes movies for children the next film on my list is yeah. one of the other movies that i would say it definitely fits on the most matured list agreed my number four is wally directed by andrew stanton it's about a little cleaning robot called Wally, voiced by Ben Burt. It's the most adorable thing you will ever see in this lifetime. He's got his big binocular eyes. It's like a little box on tracks, his little arms. He is designed to collect trash, compact it, and then spit it out and build piles and piles of garbage. That's because he is basically the last living thing on planet Earth. Yep. This film takes place more than 700 years into the future. Humanity has abandoned Earth as it has become overrun with trash and debris, and filth from the overly consumerist lifestyles that they led. So there's basically no chance for any animals or plants to grow. Water is basically all gone or turned to sludge. There's a constant smog in the sky. And Wally just spends day in, day out, compacting trash into little cubes going around town, this abandoned landscape. And he collects little oddities that he finds in the trash, you know, like a Rubik's Cube or a VHS tape of the 1969 musical Hello, Dolly. Very odd thing for a robot to eat, but you know. Eventually, Earth is visited by another robot. This robot's name is Eve, or as he says it, Eva. He's voiced by Alyssa Knight. She is a probe sent to find any signs of life. And as it turns out, Wally has a little plant that he keeps in a boot. And when he presents it to her, she shuts off, collects it, and just goes into like this shutdown mode. They had been slowly building up a little romance together prior to this happening. She's summoned back to the Axiom, which is like the world's biggest spaceship. It looks like a cruise ship managed and run by, by and large, or the company that was responsible for the ecological disaster in the first place. And Wally ends up there along with Eva. And as it turns out, all of humanity has gotten very, very uh, lazy. They're basically just big blobs at this point, sitting in their mechanical chairs that hover and go everywhere all day long. It's like the ultimate staycation gone wrong, and this is basically all that they've known for their entire lives. And the movie is all about getting back to Earth and starting everything anew, while also being one of the most beautiful love stories of the 21st century. If you ask me, the opening half hour of this movie, which is basically a silent film, but that opening half hour of just their romance is maybe the best piece of American filmmaking this century.
1: It's gorgeous. I remember being absolutely thrilled to get to see this movie. I remember the trailer so vividly where he's blowing mm-hmm, himself around the fire extinguisher and everything. <laughs> Very cute. And being completely wrapped by that opening scene. Hang on. I'm I'm just going to open up some Cracker Jacks here. Yeah. Uh, Hold on. There's a little price. It actually says, uh, Wally falls apart once they leave Earth. I literally got this take out of a Cracker Jack box where everybody else can get it too. Um, I'll be filing a
2: lawsuit because that is (laughs) definitely not true. As a matter of fact, I think the second half feeds beautifully into the first half.
1: I've never really been able to wrap my head around all of the reasons why this doesn't click for me the way that it clicks for other people. It is actually quite staggering. If you're rewatching these, particularly if you're rewatching them in release order. I watched this right after I did The Incredibles yesterday. Mm-hmm. The Incredibles great looking movie, very polished, very beautiful. This is 4 years after that was released and it feels like an entirely new set of tools and capabilities for Pixar. Mm-hmm. Like it'll stop you in your tracks how insane this looks
2: i think this might be the most beautiful film
1: the short in front of this is called resto magician and the rabbit and the habit yes i was watching all the yes. short films that came on the blu-rays with these and even that i mean it looks like ratatouille this little short film mm-hmm. how polished it is in the lighting and everything i don't want to call it a visual quality upgrade because i think sometimes people get stuck on this idea that like Good rendering is better than any other type of stuff. Like the more polish you can put on it, the better it is. I don't really agree with that because if we did, the good dinosaur would be on this list. Hmm. It's got some beautiful CG renderings, but just like is not shit as a movie. We mentioned Giacchino. This one was scored by Thomas Newman. Mm -hmm. This is like a top three Pixar score.
2: It's an incredible score.
1: I had this on my iPod back in the day because it's just (laughs) gorgeous. It's a gorgeous thing to listen to. So, technically, extremely impressive. Music, beautiful. That opening scene, I remember being in the theater just like totally into it. Cute little cockroach running around and everything.
2: The only time a cockroach has ever been cute.
1: Jumping into the Twinkie. (laughs) And then it just fucking loses me so bad. And I hate that. I brought it up with Up. I dislike the critique that the montage of Up overshadows. So, it's like, what's the difference? The only thing I can really think, the first part is that the opening half hour of this is like Pixar's Blade Runner wandering mm. around on this deserted planet. The world is polluted and falling apart. Los Angeles is in flames and smog. This is like that, past that point even. And it does so much beautiful environmental storytelling, like when you see the abandoned parking lot of this B&L Walmart looking place yeah. that is like quadruple wide, goes on for a mile. It tells you all of the story of the human's arrogance, laziness, consumption through the environment that it feels cheap to then like go up and be like, all right, and now they're fat too. And they're in these chairs because they're fat, lazy. I'm like, that does not click for me the way that just looking at the outcome does. And I think that's a bit of where my issue comes from.
2: This movie does have some dark moments in particular. The scene where Wally stops by the cemetery of all the other Wallys and is just picking out his replacement parts. Yeah. It's very funny in a very leak way. But I like that message that this movie has about we have to preserve this one place we have. And I remember when this came out on DVD, the case was made out of cardboard, yeah. all renewable materials. But the arguments about like the people living on the Axiom, it's not their sins personally. It's the sins of yeah. like the great, 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 great grandparents or whatever. For sure. It's this generational failure that happened down the line to the point where the robots are the ones in charge. The main villain of this film is the wheel of the ship, who's basically doing a HAL 9000.
1: I've never really liked that choice either.
2: It's a little obvious, but I like it.
1: There's an extended theme in this movie about the failures of human advancement and technology. Our stores that we built to provide everybody the goods that they need eventually destroyed us. The robots that we built to pick up all the trash, they all broke and fell apart. When you're watching the opening scenes of this movie, every time that you see a machine like Wally's little storage container that he lives in and it's like, you know entropy means that everything that we built is going to fall apart and that our trash really will outlive our greatest civilized achievements. Mm -hmm. I just think that every good idea of this movie, whether it's reinforced in the back half or not, is just so much better explained or not explained. It's like, that's the thing is it's not explained. You just have to interpret it all from those images. And what's kind of fucked about it at this point, I've now watched this movie several times. Every time that I put it on, it's sort of like, all right, just get over it. Just, Just enjoy it. Just go with yourself. It's such a, disconnect for me Mm -hmm. that it's even started to make me not love the opening part which is superb it's so well pitched so well done but because i know that that's not what it's really gonna be in the end Uh it just fades out becomes noise there's no pixar movie that i'm more disappointed to not be in love with but it is what it is I
2: completely understand the disconnect but for me this is just a beautifully animated gorgeous deeply moving movie about caring for each other and needing to rely on each other and taking care of the planet and what we have because of how precious it all is and also one last thing the defined dancing scene is just like one of the most beautiful things you'll ever watch in your entire
0: life
1: it really is especially visually you know so much of my discouragement over not liking this i love sci-fi i love robots Mm -hmm. space travel and all this stuff and like taking that and making it all about just like avatar is about how you know this is our home and we have to protect it it's so cool it's such a good smart idea this movie actually came out just one year before james cameron's original avatar Mm -hmm. i hope on some level that it kind of is the pixar movie that breaches beyond millennials and into the next generation i do think there's a little disconnect. A lot of people that I know that are my age or older, I think are the ones that are more frustrated with this movie. Whereas I do think people who are a bit younger, maybe saw it when they were a kid, have a little bit of a smoother time.
2: Yeah. So like me, for example, yeah.
1: And what I hope that that means is there's this generation of people who are adults now that are carrying the points of this with them. Because I do think that of every Pixar movie that exists, with the exception of maybe only Andrew Stanton's other big movie There is no movie that is more thematically urgent and important among the Pixar catalog Mm -hmm. because it's real. It's not just, you know, platitude about you got to live your life and be happy. But like, it's it's a real thing. It's like this is the real world where we really live. Very appropriate first and only criterion for this company.
2: Absolutely.
1: Gorgeous cover, too.
2: Yeah. Great looking transfer. A lot of great bonus features. And if they were going to pick any one film from the collection, I'm glad that they picked this one.
1: Even though it's not my favorite, I agree with that.
2: And you know what? If any movie can make Hello Dollyable things (laughs) a almost tear jerking moment, then, you know, there's something special about that.
1: Got his little hubcap doing his hat. (laughs) He really is such a. It's like him and Stitch there from the 2000s are just like, oh my God. The
2: cutest. You want to just squeeze them.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, this one for me, since I saw it, has always been a bit of a disappointment. I don't always love that word. You know, I don't love to focus on disappointments, but it engenders a feeling of disappointment in me because I would love to watch it in this marathon and feel as excited as I do about some of my favorites. But, you know, it's a long catalog of movies stretching back from 1995 all the way up to this year's Elemental. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, do you have any disappointments? Uh... And I don't just mean a movie that you dislike, but a true disappointment. Like, this should have worked. And it did
2: You know, it's a weird thing. Again, I grew up on most of these movies and adored them all. And they didn't really stumble until I started getting a little bit older. Mm. There's one movie that I like, but I am disappointed in. The production fiasco behind the scenes with speech into that problem of Pixar basically being a boys' club and now yeah. all the boys are starting to vanish one by one. That could have led to a much, much better movie yeah. is Brave. Agreed. Catch me on a good day. I'd say that might be their most visually spectacular movie because mm. you truly cannot mess up Scotland on film. Yeah. Even in animated Scotland, it's just gorgeous. And I like that it's a mother and daughter relationship, yeah. which is something Pixar has almost never done until much more recently. Now with Turning Red and all that, mm. but I like the conflict in it. I think it's got a great voice cast, you know, Kelly McDonald, Emma Thompson. Yeah, It's just something about it isn't quite all the way there.
1: It's a little bland. There's mm-hmm. not a lot going on. The trailers for that one, from memory, promise this kind of like adventure. Yes. Climbing the rocks, shooting her bows and arrows. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is, you know, I'll be shooting for my own eyes. And it's like this marital drama. I think part of the issue is that they went princess. Mm-hmm. They wanted to do a girls movie, so they made a Disney princess movie. Yeah. But without the music, without a lot of the things that are part of the recipe for making one of those successful. Mm-hmm. I mean, I probably like it as much as I like Tangled or Frozen, really. It's not like it's way, way, way off the mark of what Disney was doing in that decade, Mm -hmm. but it never really feels like it has the magic of 90s Disney or or before that.
2: And part of me just wonders how much of that is because Brenda Chapman didn't get to make the movie that she wanted to because the men came in and I don't want to say mangled it, but, you know, men being men.
1: You know, we were talking about soul Mm -hmm. and how some people critiqued and disliked Tina Fey being in the body of a black man. Mm -hmm. They did not like that the black actor was relegated to being a cat. Let's just say that. In this movie, it's a much worse problem, I think. Because the mother, who is such an important part of the emotional dynamic of the mother and daughter, becomes a bear who does not speak. Yeah, That's an issue. I don't have any issue with her being a bear, I guess. But the idea of making her like a... Kind of like just a regular, real bear. Mm -hmm. And so there's not really like the same emotional undercurrent that runs through the best Pixar movies. Even though the setup... Because this could be the movie that breaks down Disney princess movies it could be the movie that opens that up and takes us to new deeper places with it but it just never really gets there
2: yeah it is unfortunate
1: not a terrible movie yeah there's two for me and i've already teased why Mm. they are this way one of them would be monsters university oh yeah it's like a prequel to monsters inc i don't really care for that very much
2: kind of forgot that movie existed tbh
1: bingo That's exactly it. It's just generic. It's just like some movie that you saw. I think that came out in 2013. Yep. Just the year after Brave. And so they both have this characteristic of like, are they losing their fastball? Are we kind of fucked here? And then just a couple years after that, to me, the biggest disappointment of the entire Pixar canon, Andrew Stanton's Finding Dory.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: That's a rock to the face for me. (laughs) I don't necessarily think that Finding Nemo ever needed a sequel, but to bring back Stanton, to bring back the voice cast. It's gorgeously animated, just like the original one is, and it is fucking boring. It has none of the soul that that movie has, and it's just always broken my heart a little bit.
2: I know. It's an alright movie, like there's some great jokes in there, like the octopus and Sigourney Weaver as the voice of the aquarium, Mm -hmm. and also the sea otters blocking the highway at the end. Yeah, it's alright. But yeah, it's not the level that a sequel to Finding Nemo probably should be at.
1: I think that's a major problem with these guys. Cars, too. That's probably my least favorite Pixar movie of all. I couldn't say that I was disappointed by it because I never had any expectations for it. Yeah. But apart from the Toy Story films, kind of struggled with. I think. Yeah. But we'll go ahead and move on here to my number three. I'm turning on the Jets. From this point, most of the movies that we talk about are genuine all-time canon for me. They're movies mm. that when I revisit them, they just take my breath away. They're so exciting, so fun. They're so heartfelt. In contrast to our Disney episode, where my top two movies there were Lilo and Stitch and Sleeping Beauty, which I love. I think everything on my list and most of the stuff on yours, I like more than either of those two movies. Mm-hmm. And that starts with 2004's The Incredibles, directed mm-hmm. by Brad Bird. A story of a super family, Bob Parr, Helen Parr, and their two kids, Violet and Dash, who have superpowers. They live in a fantastical city called Munisburg.
2: I never knew it had a name.
1: Yeah, I don't think that I could have told you that until I rewatched it yesterday. It's a place where superheroes are real in the 1950s, particularly, you know, just like you would see in your DC, Marvel, whatever comic, classic stuff. It's full of superheroes that save people from evil villains, from different disasters, and particularly Mr. Incredible, that's Bob Parr, and Elastigirl are two of the biggest and best superheroes. Eventually, they get married, and that's how they form their family. But while their personal lives are coming together, their professional lives are falling apart. Because the people of Unisaberg, they're not happy with the superheroes anymore. First, Mr. Incredible saves a guy who's trying to commit suicide, ends up injuring him and preventing him from being able to kill himself and gets sued. And once that happens, now he's starting to get sued for all sorts of other injuries that were caused by a train crash that he stopped. Kept everybody from dying, but a lot of people got injured. So suddenly the government decides no more. Superheroes are now illegal. And if you agree to that, we'll basically put you in something like a relocation type of program. So now these superpowered characters are living average everyday lives, Mm -hmm. particularly Bob is working for an insurance company, where his sense of doing the right thing is really getting squeezed by corporate evil. Until he gets a call from a mysterious woman named Mirage who wants to contract him for some hero work, which is a big contrast because he and his friend Samuel L. Jackson's character Frozone have been listening to the police scanner and illegal doing vigilante work Mm -hmm. like, you know, an early Batman story, even though they're both 40 year old men. So he gets to go off to this island, fight this evil robot, which is the invention of Syndrome, a character from Bob's earlier life, a young. Boy wanted to be the Robin to his Batman, who he turned down and he became the worst type of person that there is. A bitter fanboy who decides to take his rage out on the rest of the world. This is electrifying. This movie, like, <laughs> makes my heart race. It's just so, every single part of it is so good. Fantastic action movie, fantastic family drama, and even better, family comedy. Mm-hmm. Gorgeously animated. Not just that, but it has these wonderful retro character designs.
2: When you rewatch this, it's obvious to see why Brad Bird was chosen to helm a Mission Impossible.
1: Oh, yeah. The action is so welcome that I was sitting there thinking about Raiders of the Lost Ark more than I was thinking about Toy Story.
2: I mean, just everything that happens on that island alone, like when Dash is getting chased by those helicopters, whatever they are, and just hearing the sound running through the forest and then running over the water into the Mm -hmm. tunnel. So well-blocked shot, just like a real, not like a real movie, but like, you know, just like the height of what an action movie should be.
1: In the modern day, Pixar remains a technical powerhouse, great rendering, beautiful textures, beautiful colors and lights. Mm -hmm. What Brad Bird brings to this, I think, is a sensibility that actually uses 3D animation to its full potential in a way very few other filmmakers can do. When we go back to the 80s, The Great Mouse Detective by Disney, or Aladdin there in 1992, these are early movies that use CG sequences, such as when Aladdin is flying through the Cave of Wonders. And that means that you can now take the camera and flip it around him like you really are watching an Indiana Mm -hmm. Jones movie. Film it in a more conventional way while having the ability to animate anything so that you can make it a guy with super strength fighting his way through a volcano. Mm -hmm. There's certain points like, you know, in your Mission Impossible thing, there's this one shot where it's Helen is with Edna. And Edna is basically goading her into using a tracking device that she put into Bob's suit to figure out where he is. Mm-hmm. The way that it's staged, Edna's in the foreground. Everything's kind of like this like blue, dusky, gray, shadowy, except for Helen, who's cloaked in red in the background. And it's pulling the camera so that these two figures, even though they're not changing position, are becoming larger in frame and closer and closer together. And I mean, it looks like Brian De Palma, yeah. which, Mission Impossible, right? Mm-hmm. It's like consistently great use of space in this. Yes. The scene where Bob jumps across and saves the guy from committing suicide, the camera turns from his right side to go behind him. He's timing it with the guy's fault, and then we jump and follow him all the way mm-hmm. into the window, where now somebody's committing a bank robbery over here. Right. Or in the cave, where Violet and Dash are hiding, when they go to the jungle island, they launch a rocket, which is part of the climax. So the rocket's going off to be part of a future scene that we're not at yet, mm-hmm. and the exhaust from the fire goes down through the cave, which pushes them out into where the guards are. Like everything is so spatially thought out; it's yes. just um, Marvel, and better than anything that the company called Marvel will ever fucking make.
2: Another leg it has up over any other comic book movie creating company is that this has just got like the best cast of characters and the best oh my voice God. actors. I was seven when this came out and adored it. And it's a movie about a marital drama. It is. And what the hell is a seven-year-old loving that for, you know?
1: Even the powers, I think, are really thoughtful. Mm -hmm. A lot of people will tell you and make comparisons to the Fantastic Four series of comics, which was like the original Marvel gold standard, most popular thing they'd ever made. Mm -hmm. It's called Marvel's First Family, kind of like the X-Men would eventually be in their own way which has some connections to Incredibles. Like, lots of different sequences in this really, really remind me of Singer's X-Men movies. Like, oh, yeah. The room where he's on the monitor and gets shot with all mm-hmm. the big plastic balls yeah. looks exactly like Cerebro.
2: The entire design of that island and like everything that Syndrome makes is that very sleek, metallic, retro 60s look.
1: Even the scene where Helen is approaching that island and the kids are in the plane and they're dodging Mm -hmm. the missiles, that reminds me of the scene in X-2 where they're flying the Quinjet and the missiles are coming So There's these little signifiers that remind you of the early superhero movies that had been made here in 2004, but done in such a thoughtful way where it's like, okay, Bob, he's a frustrated dad, strong, a pillar of strength, but oafish kind of clumsy has a tendency to break things as much as he ever fixes things Mm -hmm. the mom she's got mr fantastic's ability to stretch her body she's flexible that's the whole thing is that she's got to be like the flexible fluid always adjusting to what everybody around her is doing the son dash he's the speedster he's kind of the johnny storm of this because he's like a frantic little kid who just wants to run around and do sports and play pranks so of course he's like fast and then my favorite on a written level is teenage daughter who wants to turn invisible and put up force fields around herself. This idea of like the teenage insecurity manifesting Mm -hmm. itself as her powers. So even just like what they do is like a deeper representation of who they are as people Mm -hmm. and who they are as a team. And then the movie does such a brilliant job of going from Mr. Incredible, I work alone to we can only do this together as a family. Mm -hmm. Also, this is the best film in Pixar. Oh, yeah. No question bitter little shitty fanboy. The whole final scene where it's him and the baby.
2: (laughs) I love Jason Lee's line deliveries. Yeah. Like when he's got Mr. Incredible and Elastigirl trapped in his field.
1: And they got him busy. busy.
2: (laughs) But oh my God, what a cast. Like Craig T. Nelson, Holly Hunter, who I think is giving one of the best voice performances in any animated film, period.
1: Because she's both a mother and this hero. And you can hear both of it. She has this, you know, when she's flying the plane, you know, India Golf Niner, Niner. Mm-hmm. But then the sort of panic that enters her voice when she's like, there's children on this plane.
2: And like the stress of being a housewife and taking care of everything. She
1: is what holds this movie together.
2: And then suspecting Bob of infidelity, you know, like when she finds the hair on his suit.
1: I think that's a little bit of an overcooked element. It's maybe not my favorite part of it, but it does lead to, is it the movie's best character? Yes. It might be the best voice performance by the director himself, Brad Bird.
2: It might be the best character in all of Pixar, honestly. Oh my god.
1: Edna Mode. I hadn't seen this movie in a couple years. Every scene of hers had me in tears.
2: (laughs) I love her.
1: You watch this and you see why they gave Bird a Mission Impossible movie but you watch this and you can also tell that this was the guy that did the Simpsons not did the Simpsons but was a major creative contributor to that. Uh-huh. the way that she walks around in her little like stretcher, stretcher, <laughs> structure or like doing the taps state your name for security Edna mode and a gun pops down out of the ceiling
2: I guessed
1: <laughs> There's a couple great comedy moments with Mr. Incredible and the Omnibot. Mm. One of them is when he's in the cave destroying it for the first time. He's like underneath the head and he's just kind of like underneath it, like a little cartoon mouse or something. And then an even better one. I had never thought about this shot until this last time. Mr. Incredible defeats the original bot. He gets called back to the island. Mirage leads him into this room. That's a great performance too by Elizabeth Peña yes. as Mirage. She brings him into this conference room and he's like sitting down at the end of this boardroom and a door opens and it's a robot.
2: Right. And it just rips the roof off.
1: <laughs> it feels literally like it could have been ripped out of an episode of the Simpsons. Boardroom evil robot. <laughs> I love it. It's so funny. It's so good.
2: Do you remember the trailer where he's trying to put on his suit? Yeah, yeah. And like the belt just won't, and then it just
1: <laughs> yeah, across yeah. the room? Not even in the movie. That's how trailers should be, by the way. Yeah,
2: this is something that Pixar used to specifically do, was they made trailers advertising the film, but not actually containing any scenes.
1: Right. Just giving you an idea of the character.
2: They have stopped, unfortunately.
1: But yeah, this is just a great movie. Uh, I think I got a little bit burnt out on it. Once Upon a Time, because it was just so popular among my friends. It was such a like substitute teacher wheels in the AV cart. We're going to watch Incredibles today.
0: (laughs) So I saw it so
1: many times that you can almost lose track of how tightly written it is, how beautifully animated it is. Mm -hmm. Shouts to Giacchino again. Because this is just banger.
2: Fucking rocks.
1: People love to do the memes where it's the music of him looking at the computer and doing all the dead supers. Oh, yeah.
2: The tension in this movie is insane. Like genuine tension. Like the scene where Helen is in the cave with Violet and Dash and is telling them, these aren't the bad guys you see on TV. They will kill you.
1: And that speaks to pre-Disney Pixar, I think. Mm -hmm. This feels like such an antidote to not only superhero movies, but also kids' movies. Yeah, People die. There's that whole no capes montage, and you just watch like a woman get sucked into a jet engine. (laughs) It's not graphic, obviously. It's a PG movie. Uh,
2: There's the guy who's sucked into a typhoon. There's the other person who gets caught in the rocket.
1: No capes. A piece of advice Hollywood should have taken back then, but they're learning the hard way now.
2: Mm, well, they just got to keep on moving forward. They should never look back because it distracts from that now.
1: <laughs> I love
0: her so much.
2: I think that character had an outsized influence on me as a child in the way that I behave and talk nowadays.
1: <laughs> oh, confront your problem. Fight.
0: Win.
2: Then come back later, darling. I love our conversations. Uh, so The Incredibles is a fantastic marital drama that appeals to kids. The next film on my list is a existential crisis that somehow <laughs> manages to appeal to children. Yeah. Now we're reaching the Toy Story entry on my list because, honestly, you can't make a top five like, without a Toy Story movie. Pick no, any one of the four, but it is such an essential series to the company. There is at least one that will connect with you no matter what. Mm-hmm. Love all four though I do. The one that does it for me is Toy Story 2. Directed by IRL, Lotso Hugging Bear. (laughs) Ron Lassiter, the less we say the better.
1: You know, the big thing with these toy stories is that they are so collaborative. Yes. Particularly the first two basically combine every major name. I mean, not Brad Bird, but just about are all involved in this. And Mm -hmm. that's one of the things that makes it so central and special.
2: The sixth place shortly after the first one. Andy's headed off to cowboy camp and he wants to bring Woody along, but Woody's got a rip, got his arm almost hanging off. So he gets put up on the shelf next to Wheezy and a bunch of other old toys. And Andy's mom, voiced by Lori Metcalf, is having a yard sale. She takes Wheezy and puts him in the yard sale box. And Woody, who's dedicated to making sure that none of the toys ever get left behind, goes out on the family dog to rescue him. But it turns out there's this pretty awful guy at the garage sale. His name is Al and he owns a chain of toy stores and he's a very particular collector.
0: It's the chicken man.
2: So he steals Woody from the garage sale and takes him back to his place. And all the other toys, you know, Buzz and Mr. Potato Head and Slinky and Rex and Ham go off on an adventure to rescue Woody. And while Woody is at Al's apartment, he discovers that he used to be part of a major kids franchise, Woody's Roundup. And he meets the other dolls there, Bullseye, his horse, Stinky Pete, the prospector. And most crucially, as an addition to the series, he meets Jesse. Yeah. The Yodeling Cowgirl, they're all going to be sold to this museum in Tokyo, and they're going to live behind glass forever.
1: Likely place for them
2: to end up. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Woody starts to find this kind of appealing because Andy's getting a little older. He's not going to be playing with toys forever. So Woody finds himself caught in this crisis of, do I go back home and enjoy the good times while they last? Or do I settle for this somewhat happy place forever, but not be played with a kid ever again? And the film just dives into this existential crisis uh, of knowing that something important in your life is coming to an end sooner or later, and how do you reconcile with that? What are the next moves that you make to deal with that going into the next part of your life? And it is also just a deeply, deeply silly and extremely funny comedy on top of all that.
1: I think something that is true of the Toy Story movies, all four of them, in particular, it's three sequels, two, three, and four, they are Woody movies. Mm -hmm. The dramatic impulses of these movies, the dramatic arcs of these movies, they are about Woody In this one, it's about, as you say, he leaves the room, has to deal with this idea of, is it better to be temporary, but loved, cherished as a kid would, or is it better to be kind of eternal behind glass? What an insane leap in dramatic ideas Mm -hmm. from not just the original Toy Story, but also A Bug's Life. This is their third feature film. Yeah. What?
2: And made in an insane time crunch and almost deleted entirely. There was like a computer error. Every single copy of the film was deleted with only a couple of months left to go, except for one employee who just recently had a baby. So she broke the rules and made a copy of the movie and took it home. So that way she could work on it. So just by sheer accident, does this movie even exist?
1: It's a beautiful story that deepens just about everything going on in the original film. And I think it sets the tone for everything that Pixar was going to do from then on Mm -hmm. in terms of its emotional ideas, the fact that it was willing to be a child's movie, a family movie that is about such complex existential and emotional ideas, and that it would not balk at these things. It would not Mm -hmm. feed you some stupid platitude about them, but would make real genuine drama out of these things. I think the new characters introduced, particularly Jesse, played by Joan Cusack, mm-hmm. heartbreaker. Yeah, that song, which oh is like my the first God.
2: real like heartbreaking moment in a Pixar movie.
1: Violent. <laughs> There's a little bit in the original Toy Story, kinda. Yeah. It's definitely got existential themes. It's definitely got moments. It tears me up a couple points, but nothing like this.
2: Right. When you bring in Sarah McLaughlin, who's yeah. you know like in the arms of an angel with a pet organization and all that, yeah, it's same like same thing. You're aiming right for the heart
1: and landing. I think. Mm -hmm. There's nothing about that side of the story that doesn't work for me, basically at exactly the same level as the original Toy Story, which is one of my favorite animated movies of all time. Mm -hmm. The rest of it, it's alright. When I was younger, I loved this a lot. I've seen it a lot of times. This was like the de facto best Pixar movie among most of my friends growing up because of the richness of its emotional ideas. Mm -hmm. Because it was seen as that Empire Strikes Back kind of sequel that just improves everything. Yeah. You mentioned the dog. Think about going from Sid's dog in that first movie uh, to the little Dachshund that's at the beginning of this. Mm-hmm. And just what a flex that is.
2: The jumping quality is insane.
1: But in contrast to the original movie, Buzz Lightyear is not a character here. He is a vehicle to make Star Wars jokes about <laughs> Zerg, who is like, no Buzz, I am your father. And as you say it is like a silly comedy. This is Pixar is like Winnie the Pooh where one of the characters goes missing from the Hundred Acre Woods, and so all of the other characters have to gang up together and Mm -hmm. go get them. The first one obviously follows that kind of like awkward buddy duo thing that Pixar loves to do of Woody and Buzz. All the toys stay home, and this one, they all go after him. And I just get fucking nothing out of that. It's fun. It's a fun little kids movie, you know, good Barbie movie. (laughs) (laughs) Shouts to Greta Gerwig. But nothing on that side of it really works to the level of the emotions on the Woody side and even though they're going after him, it's like sort of innately plot connected. It never really feels like it's enhancing. It sort of feels like it's doing two movies at the same time and shifting years basically between the two of them Mm -hmm. so it's a movie that's grown off me just a little bit over the years because of those things
2: yeah and i can see that like it's not as narratively clean as the first one for example because it's naturally more ambitious and just doing a lot
0: more
1: that's one of the scriptiest scripts of the 1990s that original toy story so you know it's a given it's okay that it's more complicated the quickest thing that i can jump to just show what i mean is like the pop cultural incorporations because there are star wars jokes in the original one too but you might not even know that if you haven't seen it just like yesterday and Mm -hmm. aren't really familiar versus this is like we're gonna stop the narrative and we're gonna make a joke about this and then we're gonna move on it's just less fluid for me it just never quite hangs together as tightly
2: buzz's narrative arc is like done by the end of the first film so this is where they start to toy around with them compared to like does he even have anything to do in four
1: He's got a thing where he's like using his voice modulator and it's Mm. like he's like listening to his inner voice or some shit like that.
2: And then in the third one, he's Spanish and like reprograms. And this one, he's fighting with himself.
1: The third one, (laughs) I think, is a more polished Pixar adventure movie. And what the characters are going through locked up in the daycare is a little bit more thematically juiced to me than just them going after him. When we were talking about that earlier, I think two's got higher highs and a deeper richness to its ideas. Mm -hmm. But overall, I think it's a little bit more smooth in three and everything's a little bit more balanced in three. Together, they make a really beautiful pair, which is nice because I used to kind of think three was inferior because it was a little too repetitive of Two's ideas. But I think they actually just make a nice little pair together now. I actually kind of like watching them together. You will fucking cry if you watch these two movies together.
2: <laughs> it will break you.
1: I mentioned Syndrome. Stinky Pete's one of the best villains oh, of yeah, Pixar. Absolutely.
2: Well. Kelsey Grammer just hamming it up. Yeah. Love it.
1: Great heel turn for him. Presenting himself as this doddering mentor figure for Woody that kind of mm-hmm. like takes the turn. I think that's better than Lotso Huggin' and Bear in the next one, yeah. which is similar. You know, that's kind of where those parallels come in.
2: Yeah. Although I do really like Ned Beatty and Bree.
1: Me too. It just feels a little bit too much like, yeah, you did yeah. this. Although he is psychotic.
2: Genuinely one of the more terrifying Pixar villains, and it's a stuffed bear.
1: Yeah. And then is it Wayne Knight that's playing yep. Al in this? Or is it just a Wayne Knight type? No, if they <laughs>
2: went and got the original source, you know, he has to drive all the way to work on Saturday. All the way to work.
1: I feel him. I get that. I hate going into work on Saturday. Commute being short doesn't take this thing off, especially when you got to wear a chicken suit. I love, I've always really, really, really loved the bit with the spilled bowl of Cheetos. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Woody's having to navigate around all of them and the, like the horse mm-hmm. just keeps stepping on them.
2: Bullseye won't stop licking Al's <laughs> fingers.
1: Oh, that's good shit.
2: Everything in the airport is such a great mm. build up for what you were talking about with the doors and Monsters Inc.
1: Very similar. Visual.
2: Haven't we all kind of wondered what the luggage area looks like because of this movie? (laughs)
1: Yeah. There's a great moment right at the beginning when Woody's ripped his arm and he's thinking about, you see it in sometimes, like, I don't want to play with you anymore. And he drops oh, it yeah! Off, but he falls down through the cards and everything. Uh-huh. It's a really surrealistic and imaginative sequence in these Toy Story movies, which I think are some of the most visually grounded that Pixar ever is. Mm-hmm. As I said earlier, they're bleeding edge of how well we can render stuff. But it has always been in concept about how simple these characters are to make. Mm-hmm. And so it's about like, perfecting something that's kind of grounded so anytime you get that little fantastical imagery it's really a nice contrast
2: and of course free takes that even further with the big opening big
1: imagination big ham ship
2: yeah giant rex
1: good side characters in these movies you know even though i'm a little cooler on it these days and particularly on the potato head buzz rex going around Mm -hmm. they are just fun characters and it's a really fun voice cast
2: the thing with Pixar is that they cast celebrities, mm-hmm. but they do it so well and for yeah. that person's talents. Agreed. Like, you know, they got a bunch of comedians for this. Yeah. Except they got like the best comedians that you could imagine. You know, like you have a neurotic Tyrannosaurus Rex. Of course, that's going to be Wallace Shawn. Right. You got a grouchy old man. Of course, it's going to be Don Rickles. Yeah. And then, of course, Estelle Harris is going to be his wife.
1: She's a great addition <laughs> to this movie. The Wayne Knight, she plays George Costanza's mother on Seinfeld as well sort of like the first place I think I ever saw her.
2: They were poached from Seinfeld a lot in their early days, weren't they?
1: What? I mean, they ruled the roost in the 1990s, Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld. (laughs) I think this was where a lot of people see Pixar graduating into true greatness. Their first movies are both comedies with Toy Story and A Bug's Life. And this one, it's like, Mm -hmm. it's as much of a drama as it is a comedy. And they would never relinquish that identity.
2: Right. This is just a genuinely fantastic movie. It's a total blast easily maybe the most rewatchable Pixar movie to me. Mm. Like it's just one that I could throw on and just know that I'm going to have a good time. And for a film that was made in a very fraught situation and also as a sequel to one of the most beloved American films of the 1990s, they had a lot of pressure on them yeah. and they knocked it out of the park. In terms of sequels outside of the Toy Stories, it's not their strong suit. It's not. And they struggle. I mean, the only one of them that I think really does anything for me is Incredible 2.
1: Agreed. You and I are on the same page there.
2: Which also had a metric ton of pressure on it because there had been 14 years of pent-up demands for that to happen.
1: And then it was a monster hit.
2: And I think that they met it. It played like an adult superhero movie. It played like a Marvel blockbuster. Endgame. Yeah. And the same year that Infinity War came out.
1: So that was the year of Movie Pass. This was one of my Movie Pass movies, I remember. RIP. If you recall those Halcyon days. This is also my pick for their best sequel outside of Toy Story 2 3. But it doesn't mean that it's perfect. There are a lot of people who actually quite dislike this movie that I know, which I've never really understood. I like it quite a bit. But there are certain choices. Like, I don't really like that it takes place. So immediately after the first movie that the opening scene is the government guy, like wiping the memory of the characters in the first movie. And it's just like the underminer from that final scene. It's like, Mm. it's been 14 years. It's okay if there's a bit of a gap and things have progressed. I don't really think many sequels have ever flourished from picking up the baton from the exact moment the last one left off without any development, unless it's like, or the rings, Mm -hmm. where it's one continuous narrative. Right. One of the reasons I don't really like that is because if it were me, and you charged me with making a sequel to The Incredibles, the first character that I would hone in on is Violet. I would make her Andy, like sending her off to school or something similar, age her up and really center it on that drama because so much of the first movie is like her finding herself and discovering how to be part of this family and how to express mm-hmm. herself. She's the most obvious source of disconnect, drama. So I think failing to age them up and failing to really focus it on either of the kids, yeah. well, there's three kids, isn't really the recipe. But what I love that they do is they center it on the mom. Exactly, That rocks. And in tandem, the action here is just as good as the original movie, mm-hmm. at least when it's at its highest points,
2: Like that train chase? Oof.
1: The scene where she fights the brainwashed character in the strobing room, Oh which yeah. got the token, this film contains a sequence with flashing lights.
2: Right, which was like, from what I remember, the first real time that a warning like that was placed everywhere in a theater and that people took it as a serious issue.
1: That scene in particular, it is not like a second of strobing. It's like a full minute of, yeah, like, boom on the theater screen. It's tough. Great action. The reason that this still registers for me is because they basically take Mr. Fantastic of the Fantastic Four, they pitch him once again with one of the great Holly Hunter voice performances in this whole franchise as a middle aged mom. And the action is like as good as any Raimi Spider Man movie mm. where she's just flying around town. It's just so thrilling. And then, they get some good jokes off out of Craig T. Nelson as, like, Mr. Mom. Math is math.
2: Oh, God, when they're trying to figure out the new math.
1: <laughs> the bit where he's busting with the baby who, like, launches himself off and then disappears to another dimension or is fighting the raccoon.
2: This movie is like the Jack-Jack comedy hour in some ways, and mm-hmm. they get a lot of great jokes out of that baby just going haywire.
1: It has a lot of strengths. It's also gorgeous. Like the rendering, people even critiqued it. They spent so much time where you can see the blonde, wispy hairs on Mr. Incredible's arm and stuff like that. Almost unnecessarily detailed.
2: Mm -hmm. But it's that level of dedication that I think gives Pixar a special status in people's minds.
1: Well, going from this talk about sequels and how detailed they look, we now move into what I will call, at least for me, the five-star segment. Because my next two movies are both Five stars for me mm. and that's my favorite toy story movie from 1995 the original also directed by john lasseter based on an original story by pete doctor co-written by joss whedon involving some i think rewrite type stuff with andrew stanton just really like every heavy hitter in the company's history coming together to create a debut feature basically an extension off of one of their early shorts toy, Mm -hmm. taking these items on a kid's shelf and asking a question that would define this entire company's output, which is, what if when a little boy left his room, all of the different toys were animated to life and they had their own personalities, desires, and their own secret world that they lived in? that we don't really get to see. It exists on the fringes of our reality. Mm -hmm. And it's such a brilliant little animation prompt because even outside of the bounds of the movie, you might go home as a kid and think, what if my dinosaur toy could come to life? What would his personality be like? Mm -hmm. This is the story of a boy named Andy. As we well know, I mean, we've talked about two, three, and four all at this point. So the premise of this seems a little rote. But we've got Andy, who's just a little boy who lives with his single mother and his young sister, Bonnie right yeah no bonnie's the girl that they give everything to wait be.
2: molly is the sister and then bonnie's the
1: molly's the sister bonnie's the one they get the toys to yes and he's got one toy that is his absolute favorite his bedspread his curtains he eats his cowboy hat and that's woody the main character portrayed by tom hanks in i mean is it tom hanks career best role as woody the sheriff <laughs> i know that that's a big thing because he's a great actor storied Hollywood star.
2: Like, you gotta let me go through his filmography a little bit just for the pages, but that is, like, I mean, it's up there.
1: He's incredible. And in this particular movie, he gets to flex a few more emotions than I think he does in the later ones, which might sound a little weird based on things that we've said, but I'll get into that. Because what ends up happening is that during Andy's birthday, which they're celebrating before the family is due to move, mm-hmm. he gets an all-new toy, a very modern toy, compared to Woody, who's like this little fabric doll with a little rubber head the pull string, Mm -hmm. he gets a new toy called Buzz Lightyear, which is like the top of the pops, plastic. He's got a voice box. He's got a laser. He's got wings. He's got a retractable helmet. In one of what I think is one of the most creative scenes in any of these movies, during the birthday party, they've got the army guys down on the radio. And they're talking about, it's a comforter. Oh, it's a new pair of pajamas.
2: It's bedsheets. Who invited that kid?
1: (laughs) And so they're all kind of relieved at first because none of these things are toys. Mm -hmm. But then we realize... It's Buzz Lightyear bed sheets, it's Buzz Lightyear curtains, it's Buzz Lightyear pajamas, it's a Buzz Lightyear lunchbox, because everything has been coordinated around Andy's new toy, which arrives on top of the bed and changes the hierarchy of power in Andy's bedroom forever. Which causes Woody to become an envious, sour little bitch about not being the favorite anymore. And that leads to trying to stymie Buzz's takeover in every way that he can, which is sort of awkward and funny because Buzz is utterly unaware that he is a toy. Mm -hmm. And this leads to both of them getting kicked out of the room, first Buzz, and then all of Andy's toys blame Woody, so they kick him out too. And the two of them have to go on an adventure to try to get back to Andy's room before the family moves, overcome all their grief with each other, and avoid the next door sadist, Sid. A kid Mm -hmm. who really likes to destroy toys. And it is just like a machine.
2: Mm -hmm. A well-oiled, flawless contraption.
1: All the little cogs just mesh together. The ultimate act of collaboration that creates, I think, like the most classic of Pixar archetypes, which is the toys that are not toys. Mm -hmm. When you look away, they're alive. Which I think is so central to every imagination concept that Pixar does.
2: It's that punchline, like, what if X had feelings?
1: Yeah, right. right. What if
2: feelings had feelings?
1: And then it's that extremely well-used archetype, although I would argue that with only maybe one exception that might be the number one on my list, Hmm. it's the best usage of two characters who are at odds with each other going on a journey together and figuring out how the fuck to patch that up. Mm -hmm. And it all stems from Hanks. In all the rest of these movies, he's like the leader he's the voice of reason which he still is here even though he's also pretty much the antagonist of the film. He's an asshole
2: in this movie. He's like a little dictator.
1: It's such a great work of character for that reason.
2: Considering the circumstances in which this was made even more impressive because they basically had a year to turn this around and fix it. When they were developing it, they were the head of Disney animation at the time was good old quippy darling Jeffrey Katzenberg who kept on insisting to make this more edgy, more satirical, more mean, make Woody an even bigger asshole to the point where nobody liked working on the movie. And then when Katzenberg got the boot, it was like, okay, you have a year to turn around and fix this thing. And they did. Like They were able to turn it around from being a complete disaster.
1: I think the we didn't rewrite on the script is probably the single most impactful element as to not only why I love it, but why I consider it to be such a high watermark. Mm -hmm. I understand he's got a complicated legacy at this point, Mm -hmm. even just as a creator. I'm not even talking about his personal baggage. I'm talking about the way that his style has arguably tainted some of the tone, like the irony poisoning that we see in a lot of blockbusters. But here, it's weighed against pure, unadulterated doctor sincerity of that original story Mm -hmm. and the balance of the two is fucking incredible yeah well oiled machine great jokes one of the reasons why this towers over the other toy story movies for me is something i've already said and it's that buzz's arc in this is just as good as Woody's. going from Mm -hmm. kind of a comedic side character because he's like this fish out of water but then he has like a true reckoning with the fact that no You're not a fish. You're just out of water. Mm -hmm. (laughs) His mental breakdown the Miss Nesbitt (laughs) thing.
2: There's some really great dark humor in this, too. Like Marie Antoinette and her little sister. And then when they're trying to get back over to Andy's house, Woody has Buzz's attached arm and he just waves it and everyone's like,
1: (laughs) ah, so good. Barfing. (laughs) They would become bigger presences, but the pizza planet with the little alien rubber guys. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, There's so much thoughtfulness in this movie. As we said in the sequel, Woody is a toy of this little kid. He has no idea that he's based on a television show that he learns in the second movie. Mm -hmm. Buzz has this whole thing where he's made to such specifications that he thinks that he's real. The aliens who only have ever lived inside of the base of this rocket ship think that this claw that comes down and picks them up is God taking them to heaven. Everything is founded by the way that these toys live. And I think that that's present in the visual of this movie. So the humans in this movie look horrifically Ugly and terrifying.
2: I mean, better than the baby in toy, <laughs> The most demonic child you've ever seen in your entire life.
1: And the dog might be even worse.
2: Hit it with a broom.
1: I think they work around this clear issue in two ways. Because the two humans that you see the most of would be the sister, Molly, who is a baby that rips Mr. Potato head apart. Just, you know, a <laughs> little baby like, it's okay if it's ugly and off-putting. Right. And then Sid, right. who is the villain, who is like the monster <laughs> of this movie. And his dog, yeah. who is also an even more direct monster like beast. It brings you deeper into the emotions with the toys, who are not as off-putting to look at.
2: They leaned into the limitations of what computer animation could do in 1995, Mm -hmm. making it about a bunch of toys, which are almost all plastic, so that you're not having to try to convince people that these natural textures are characters that you should be emotionally invested in.
1: This is the movie outside of Brad Bird's that does by far the most with the idea of what a camera can do in 3D space. Mm. The perspective of these toys. What does it look like when you are one inch high and looking up at the rest of the world? Something yeah. that they would obviously do a lot with in A Bug's Life. Mm-hmm. Compare, and they're different scenes. I'm not just trying to shit on Toy Story 2 with this. Compare the scene in Toy Story 2 where Buzz rides the hot wheel through the loop and flies around the room, which is how he's kind of introduced in this movie. And it's like this fluid set piece in Toy Story 2, but here, the camera is on buzz and you are the one going through the track, going through the loop. Everything is perspective, Mm -hmm. everything is scale and size. Another good example is when Woody stages the breakout from Sid's house, because Sid does his little mutant toy thing. And so it's like a duck that's being lowered on a fishing pole that is swinging back and forth to ring the doorbell so the sister will let the dog out. Mm -hmm. You are glued to the character with the camera, like flinging yourself at the door. The actual physical movements of these toys is so well thought out in this movie, and it contributes so much to its sense of style and visual humor. To me, this is like the perfect Pixar organism. They have rarely made anything I like as much as this.
2: Mm -hmm. It really is the perfect movie at the end of the day.
1: Mm -hmm. Plenty of limitations, but we created everything within those limitations in a way that just knocks it out of the park. Mm-hmm. This would be on a very short list of my favorite American animated movies of all time. What I think mm-hmm. are like the best things that we've ever come up with. You know, it'd be like Brad Birds, the Iron Giant. I would probably put over this, but only just
2: mm. This would definitely be high up on that list for me as well. I think I prefer a little bit more of the 2D. That's just my personal take.
1: I definitely agree with that, actually. There's no real case to be made that these 3D movies are ever as gorgeous as something like bambi right but especially in these early years in the 90s and in the 2000s just the sheer technical hurdle mm-hmm. like the technical challenge comes in and makes up for it a little yeah. bit
2: you know it's an even bigger technical hurdle than plastic what's that water
1: mm, yeah oh my it God. is
2: impossible to create water in animation almost yeah Oh, that's James Cameron, but yes, <laughs> I mean he figured it out. Pixar was bold enough to try it in two thousand three as well, and it worked like gangbusters. Mm-hmm. My number two, Finding Nemo, was the first film by Andrew Stanton. Yeah, focuses on Marlin, a very anxious clownfish voiced by Albert Brooks. Because who else would you hire to voice a socially anxious clownfish? Marlin is a helicopter parent over his only surviving child, Nemo who has a lucky fin didn't grow all the way because at the start of the movie as you see Marlin's wife and almost all of their eggs were eaten by a barracuda and what is probably one of the darkest scenes pixar's ever put into anything
1: Kind of pixar's bambi yeah overall, honestly and that scene is very much that
2: just looking out into the open ocean and then you just see this dark shape right yeah. there And then it immediately goes right for the kill. But it's Nemo's first day at school, heading out with Mr. Ray and everybody else. You know, let's say in the zones, zones, zones. And... Nemo is getting sick and tired of Marlin. Like he's his dad and he wants the best for him, but he's just way too controlling, practically squeezing the life out of the poor kid. So Nemo takes up a bet. He goes up to touch the butt, which is the underside of this boat just hanging out there on the open ocean. There's a couple of human divers nearby. One of them takes Nemo for his own. Nemo ends up in Sydney in a dentist's office with the incredible cast of characters, fish who have lived in tanks for their entire lives with the exception of one name is Gil. He's voiced by Willem Dafoe. In the meantime, Marlin is trying desperately to find his son. It looks like things aren't going to go well until he runs into a blue tang called Dory, who saw a boat going that way. Except the thing is, she's got short-term memory loss, so she's not maybe the best partner to travel with. But the movie follows Marlon and Dory, who's voiced by Ellen the Generous, on their grand adventure to try to get to Sydney and rescue Nemo and reunite Marlon with his son. Yeah. What a fucking movie. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Is there a single miss in this cast of characters? I say no. No. Every single one of them is a home run hit.
2: It's possibly their best cast ever.
1: As you were describing this movie, I realized this is kind of doing everything I want Toy Story 2 to be doing. Mm. Where you've got, kind of like original Toy Story, you've got this odd couple traveling together with Marlon and Dory. And then they have to go save Nemo, who is living his life under glass, kind of the way that Woody is, but in this way that it's like the fish out of their environment. And we see how, I think what's so beautiful about this, especially when I consider Stanton's follow-up Wally Mm -hmm. is the depiction of human impacts on the natural world and how the fish that we keep from pet stores are like bucking, plainly neurotic, (laughs) or the seagulls who hang out by
2: Sydney Bay
1: have this whole mentality. I think of crabs that crawl along the water treatment pipe Mm -hmm. because their lives have been affected by human behavior. The sea mines that are dotted all over the shark's little home. Mm -hmm. Another great set of characters there. Absolutely. Shark AA. (laughs) Seemed to have misplaced my friend, and the phones pop out of his teeth.
2: (laughs) Such a great, morbid little detail.
1: This is the animation of Pixar for me, no question.
2: I mean, even 20 years on, it still looks incredible. Sure, their technology has improved over time, but just in capturing the beauty of the ocean and everything inside of it, it is an incredible looking movie. Because you have all these different environments, like the reef that they live in, and all those different colors from the corals and the anemones, or the anemones, because anemones. Don't hurt yourself. All that detail, and then you have the shocks that are living in the submarine with all the landmines surrounding it. The pitch black of nothing when they're trying to reach the goggles, and there's that anglerfish that they're running from. It's just so incredible looking.
1: As much as Giacchino is kind of the Pixar guy for me, Newman with this movie and Wally makes his case that no, Giacchino is not. Mm hmm. I love the use of piano in this. It's obviously somewhat evocative of William's Jaws score. The actual bit near the climax and everything is really starting to go to shit. I think I'm thinking of when Nemo and Dory get caught by that fishing boat. Mm -hmm. And the song's like boom, 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 boom,
2: boom. Yeah. Boom, 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 boom. It turns dark and very stressful.
1: This is just a wonderful adventure movie. And, Mm -hmm. you know, no better place to do that than in the sea. I love the East Australian Current, the jellyfish set piece, (laughs) the bit with the sharks, the sea mines that are all blowing up. It's very thrilling and fun.
2: Yeah. Love the turtles. Just adorable.
1: I'm not as big of a fan of the fish tank stuff, of the tank gang. Great characters, great stuff. It works. It's just, you know, not as thrilling. It's not as like, we're on the adventure, we're having fun. But Defoe, in particular, really brings that in. Mm -hmm. I love the use of these almost unwitting human villains. Like, this is just a dentist. Mm -hmm. This is just some guy and his little niece. They don't mean any harm, but...
2: I love the psycho strings every time Darla's name gets mentioned.
1: (laughs) This was like my first favorite Pixar movie.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: I was five, so they had the target aimed right at me to be just annihilated by the marketing campaign.
1: I went to the theatrical re-release of The Little Mermaid Uh there in like 98, I think. And I remember being completely gobsmacked by seeing The Little Mermaid on the big screen as such a little kid. This has the exact same impact. yeah, Arguably even more. This is one of the few movies where what we were just saying about how the 2D animation is like always better. This one starts to challenge that because yeah. you could make this as a traditionally animated movie, not with all the water's movements and the light mm-hmm. and the particle effects.
2: You would lose that.
1: You can animate those things for sure, but there's just something kind of as if you're at the aquarium and really watching these fish interact with the water in their environment.
2: As insane as it sounds, that's a great movie to relax to. Honestly, mm-hmm.
1: this is top one, top two most rewatchable Pixar's. I would say the original Toy Story, mm-hmm. just because it's such a tight little comedy. I mean, I could throw this on any time and yeah. just get swept up into it.
2: Part of that is also just because of the cast, because it's just a stroke of genius.
1: The pair of Brooks and DeGeneres, I mean, it's easily as good as Hanks and Alan are in Toy Story. Yeah. I think Brooks brings his quavering, neurotic, anxious mm-hmm. kind of thing. I love how that's tied into, again, like the dangers of the environment. He lost every single one of his kids and yeah. his wife. And now he's trying to figure out how to not just move on from that, because he basically has.
2: How to really let go. And then meanwhile, you've got Generous, who is genuinely, give her the supporting actress Oscar for this. Yeah. Don't care that she's animated and, you know, just giving a voice performance. Like, honest to God, just better than anything else anyone else was doing that year.
1: I want to shout out to, this was co-directed by Lee Unkrich, Mm -hmm. who also co-directed Toy Story 2. He co-directed Monsters, Inc., and he directed Toy Story 3 and directed Coco. Yeah. We don't have Toy Story 3 or Coco on our list, but his three co-directed features are all on this list. There's so many people that come together to make one of these, particularly in 3D because you have so many visual mm-hmm. effects artists. Right. Multiple writers and stuff like that. So just a little bit of love to Mr. Unkrich.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's a deeply collaborative process, even more possibly than live-action filmmaking is.
1: There's a lot of trial and error in sort of like, how are we going to design this? And I remember one of the big things with this was that they had to tone down the realism of the fish right. to make them more approachable.
2: Had to move the eyes from the sides of the head to the front of the face.
1: I wanted to make one other note. The use of comedians mm-hmm. and their personas. Like, the reason Degeneres is so good here is because it's such a good Degeneres role. I wouldn't want her to voice Jessie in Toy Story 2. right? But it's so perfectly applied here. And no other company really has figured out the celebrity voice casting to the degree these guys have.
2: No, Any other studio would just go out and cast names for the sake of the names. But like, for example, everyone in the fish tank, Jeffrey Rush, that's the pelican, Brad Garrett, Allison Janey, Vicki Lewis, Joe Rams. So you've got like all this great comedic talent creating this just insane little cast.
1: Wonderful movie. Brilliant story about fatherhood. Great natural themes. Has aged basically perfectly visually Mm -hmm. like you don't have to make excuses or reason with why does the dog in toy story look like this it's just everything is just Mm -hmm. so fine-tuned so well done i think it would be easy to make the case for this as like their very best effort
2: or at the very least the most timeless what a movie
1: in terms of those tank characters or even like uh who's the guy he's on cheers and he's in like all of these movies i can't think of his name
2: i literally met this guy at the opening of the Pixar exhibition in Boston, like at yeah, the formal say, opening.
1: Boston, cheers, all that stuff.
2: Oh, John Ratzenberger.
1: There we go. In Finding Nemo, he's got a cute little thing where he plays like a school of fish that are all-, all making the designs together, yeah. mocking the shit out of
2: Marlin, basically.
1: <laughs> One of the reasons why Pixar drubs Disney is in the use of side characters. Because in a lot of Disney movies, whether you want to talk about, like, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Mulan, these celebrity voices, Jason Alexander shouts to Seinfeld again, they're awkward. They really don't work. They really don't fit what the story's trying to Mm -hmm. do. But I think with Pixar, they do a fantastic job. Of not only the casting, as we've talked about, but just building characters around that. I'm curious, before we get into our respective favorite Pixar movies, are there any side characters? Not Marlin, not Dory, not Gil, but more the side characters. For instance, Edna Mode, portrayed by Brad Bird, or Crush the Turtle, portrayed by Andrew Stanton, two directors starring in their own movies. <laughs>
2: I mean, we're going to be talking about a couple of them in my number one when we get there, but yeah, they've just had so many great side characters over the years. Even as like a one single joke, I love the seagulls in Finding yeah. Nemo.
1: I couldn't even really tell you. Like in A Bug's Life, there's like a million little tiny itty-bitty side characters that are just there yeah. for like one gag, one joke. Like the mosquito drinks the blood, turns fat, mm-hmm. passes out kind of yeah.
0: thing.
1: <laughs> I think we mentioned Roz from Monsters, mm-hmm. Inc., Wazowski. Yep,
2: she's fantastic.
1: I want to dig into my list because I bet I can find one that's even. I'm trying to think. We really have covered these. Putting this at the end is tricky.
2: I even like some of the side characters in the first Cars film. Mm. You know, like when he gets stuck in Radiator Springs. The little Italians. Yeah, and like the old lady and then the urgent guy and the hippie. Maybe a little trite, but they are genuinely funny.
1: Too much of my rewatch was focused on the actual movies we were talking about, so we have mostly brought them up. Because you don't really get better than him. That's sort of the tricky part.
2: Right. She's the best of the best.
1: Well, you know what? Let's go ahead and get into our main movies and let's see if they offer us a few more side characters to talk about. So for me, this is probably the most controversial opinion on my entire list. Having this particular movie, number one, I've used a couple of years as markers, 2008 and 2010, to talk about a cutoff. Almost none of the movies on our list are contemporary. I mentioned Soul by Pete Doctor, which is from 2020. By and large, our picks come from the 90s and they come from the 2000s because really it's up to Wally and up and Toy Story 3. And then we go into Cars 2, Brave, Monsters, whatever, Good Dinosaur, blah, 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 blah. But my favorite comes from the 2010s, in spite of all of that. A movie that I saw when I was in my 20s and that just completely hit me. At the exact right time, even though I'm pretty sure it's a movie for nine-year-olds. And that is the fourth Eat Doctor movie on the list, Inside Out, from 2015.
2: Is that all of them?
1: All four. (laughs) That's my bad a little. Could have had a, maybe Toy Story three over one of them at the bottom, but yeah, Monsters Inc., Up, Inside Out, and Soul all made it onto here. Inside Out is the story of a young girl named Riley, who, somewhat like Andy in Toy Story, if you wanna go there, has to move, I believe, to San Francisco, California with her two parents. And it's tough. She's from Minnesota. And while everybody in California loves to talk about California and how great it is, sunny weather and all the beautiful things, all the great places there are to go eat.
2: And a chance to go watch Zone of Interest 500 times.
1: (laughs) (laughs) When you're from the Midwest and you like to play hockey, you know, you're leaving all your friends behind the beautiful sunny beaches and their broccoli pizza just don't really appeal to you in the same way. (laughs) It's the story of what it is like to be a young girl and move. In a way, I think it's the most simplistic of any Pete Doctor premise, of any Pixar movie premise, because really that is what the movie is. It is about the hardships of just being a regular kid. But being that it is a Pete Doctor movie, we don't just spend time with this little girl and her mom and her dad who is hot. Mm-hmm. We go inside her mind where we learn about the inner workings of her emotions. And particularly, we have five characters joy voiced by Amy Poehler, sadness, voiced by Phyllis Smith. Then you've also got fear, voiced by Bill Hader, anger, voiced by Louis Black, and then finally disgust, voiced by Mindy Kaling. Another good usage of these comedic voices Mm -hmm. to bring to life these different aspects of a person's mind. And the main character up in the control panel of Riley's mind is her joy, boundless, childlike happiness. This character appears as light. Particles of light held together by the magic of animation. Mm -hmm. And she's totally in love with this girl. Through her, we get to learn about Riley's childhood and all the things that she likes. There are particularly these islands of personality, which are like her love of hockey and her friends and her family. Things that are the pillars of who a person is and who they grow into be. But this move throws everything into disarray. She's not happy and carefree anymore. She's starting to grow up. She's becoming a little bit more upset, testy, angry, and sad. And Mm -hmm. that's where the real conflict of this movie comes in, is Joy not understanding what that blobby, crying little fuck is here for. What is she good for? She just makes us feel bad. All of the blue memories that are sad memories suck. I don't like this. What's this all about?
2: Yeah, Joy is kind of a manic dictator.
1: Hello, Woody. (laughs) And so again, we really have, I think, kind of a parallel to my second favorite Pixar movie, which is Toy Story, where these two characters who are polar opposites get kicked out of Andy's room. I mean, Riley's control panel. And they have to make their way back through the abstraction of her mind and all these different things to help run the ship. And when they leave, we see Riley in the real world go into this state of depression, not really feeling joy or sadness just everything turning gray. Mm -hmm. Making a kid's movie about this and not just being silly, goofy shenanigans, but making it into something that feels, in my opinion, very intelligent, deft. And at a point in my life, in my sort of early to mid-20s there, where I was asking myself all through the hardest years of my life, going to college, trying to work, live on my own, What is the point of feeling sad? And isn't this such a drag on our existence? And then here comes this children's movie to reaffirm, no, sadness has a role in our lives, a very important one that makes you human, that makes Mm -hmm. you who you are
2: when I saw this, this was being number one. My eyebrow went up a little bit.
1: It's a little bit of a pick.
2: Right. I mean, it's in my top 10, but it's at like the lower end. And I feel like that's the agreement with a lot of people is that it's really great. The best of the 2010 stuff. But it's not at the height of the classics for a lot of people. But I still really do love this one. I think it's incredibly smart, especially for a kid's movie, to make a movie for children that says it's okay to be sad. It's okay to let that emotion come out. It's okay to just sit down and cry for a little bit. You have to do it. It's essential. You can't just be happy-go-lucky manic running around all the time.
1: Sometimes I think modern movies can fall into this idea of like therapy speak, where every character is so intelligent about their emotional lives.
2: Disney really does this a lot.
1: The screenwriters who are millennials, people my age, are like trying to put emotional ideas like this. I think having joy be such a complex, it's easy to understand the appeal of joy. It's easy to understand like why she's a good guy,
0: mm-hmm. but then yeah.
1: pitching her so that her—I used to be in counseling positions in different jobs that I've had in the past that were kind of like volunteer-based. And one of the big things that you learn is not to silver lining people, mm-hmm. not to look at someone in distress and say, now, oh, but think about this. Wouldn't you rather be doing this than be that guy over there with his problems and not just diminishing the negative mm-hmm. to emphasize the positive positive, right. realize how harmful that can be. The first time I saw this movie, the scene that really got me involves Richard Klein's character,
0: mm-hmm. Bing Bong, who
1: I think is one of the great creations of this movie, but it's probably not the scene that comes to everybody's mind when they hear about Big Bob.
2: Take her to the moon for me, okay?
1: Fuck. Ow. That's an amazing (laughs) scene, but that's not the one. What has happened before Bad Exchange is that his wagon that he travels in, which is his rocket ship that he played with the girl in, that goes over the side into this discarded memory area of things that we've forgotten. And Joy, in her way, is like, okay, let's go. Let's move on. Sadness sits down with him on the ledge and says, yeah, it really sucks that that happened. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to feel sad. I know what it's like to feel pain. We can only heal through empathy. And empathy is an action of connecting with the darkness and negativity of someone else's experiences with your own. It's not just telling them that things are going to be okay. It's telling them that it's okay that they're not okay right now. I don't think any movie had ever quite made that message as crystal clear to me as this children's movie did. It has stuck with me since. And then there's just a host of other brilliant things about it. One of my favorite bits is that there's a push-pull in Pixar. As things get more advanced towards your Toy Story 4, everything gets more and more realistic. We've already talked about this with Soul. But I love how this movie gives you the two environments so that one of them shows you the 2015 technical apex of Pixar and the other one exists inside of a mind, where the characters, they used Disney 2D animators after they had been absorbed by Disney mm-hmm. to help give these things more of the techniques of 2D animation so that there would be form morph when they move around and that they're creative and that they're abstract. And so to me, this is just sort of like the 3D animation company finally figuring out a way to incorporate more 2D concepts while still giving you an entire portion of the plot that is that hyper-realistic, very grounded, and teaching you that every part of this great adventure happens within a person when they're just going to hockey practice yeah. and just having a conversation with their dad. Yeah.
2: Just to build a movie out of a metaphor is ambitious. And, you know, some people accused Pixar of not being original with this one just because like the concept of little voices inside your head controlling you is as old as time, frankly. Mm-hmm. But this is the version of that that puts in so much care and attention to detail. Like, I think my favorite scene might be when they're arguing at the dinner table and you go inside Mm -hmm. the mom's head and then you go inside the dad's head and you see how they interact with each other.
1: Right. The dad's pilot is anger and the mom's pilot is sadness, which is an Mm -hmm. interesting detail.
2: It's just so telling. But it's just such a great touch. And, you know, you got the argument going on between the console boards in them. For this, I gave up that Brazilian helicopter (laughs) pilot. And then the dad's like just not getting it until he does. And, you know, brings down the hammer on his kid who's being a little bit of an asshole. But, you know, it's like what kids do.
1: I do think some of the humor in this is more broad than some of my favorite Pixar comedies. Like I would say The Incredibles, Monsters, Inc., Mm -hmm. Toy Story, all funnier than this. Yeah. But it manages to keep those things within the wheelhouse of its design. Right. I've already drawn out my own parallels and they don't bother me that they're so similar because they're my two favorites. Mm-hmm. This is Toy Story, but with more zest. It's like taking the emotional constructs of two and applying it to the, the airtight construction of one. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm there. I'm in. Yeah. I love everything that Polar and Smith are giving to these two lead roles too. Mm-hmm. Not as funny or as iconic and memorable as Woody and Buzz. But I think in that way, it just makes it feel more connected to this set of ideas. Which is why the sequel, just no. I don't know. Maybe it'll be good. But I don't have any expectation for it to be.
2: Not feeling anxiety, huh? Maya Hawk.
1: On <laughs> It's not even directed by Doctor anymore, so like...
2: There's a lot writing on it in the same way that a lot was writing on this one. Because this one came out in the middle of the 2010s for Pixar when their star had dulled. Cars 2, which everyone hated, made a lot of toy sales, I guess, but no respect for it. Brave, which did well enough, even won an Oscar, but people felt like that was kind of ridiculous. And then you had Monsters University, which did nothing. And then The Good Dinosaur following this. So there was a solid seven years between this and when they finally won everybody back with Coco. Right. And so you had just Inside Out in the middle of all that, trying to hold up the company name.
1: To me, it's not only easily the best Pixar effort of the 2010s, this is my favorite movie that came out of any of the Disney branches in the 2010s, meaning animation, live action, Pixar, Lucasfilm, including The Last Jedi, and Marvel, like all of them. To me, it's fucking easily the best thing that they have put out since the end of the 2000s.
2: Honestly, I'd have to agree, considering just how Leak the 2010s work for them as a studio. It's
1: not good. <laughs> I still really love the Force Awakens and the Last Jedi a lot. There mm-hmm. are some good Marvel movies in that range. The feature animation side is like... I mean... My favorite one's like wreck it Ralph. <laughs> <laughs> ew.
2: <laughs> that sounded judgmental, but...
1: By all means, ew away. <laughs> uh, video games, no, that's me, but...
2: Yeah, I really like Moana. Moana.
1: yeah, seem to be the two. Maybe some people would say Zootopia, but like, yeah. none of those are even half as good as this. we
2: even think about Zootopia nowadays. But yeah, this is like the one gem Disney had Agreed. in the 2010s. Agreed. And what's it saying that this is a movie with adult themes, but is for kids at the end of the day 100%. and explain to children,
1: which I think that is a strength of this movie. Mm-hmm. If you made this for adults and it were an adult movie, you would have to change about 60% of what happens in this yeah. what the conflicts are about and how we deal with them mm-hmm. to make it a truly adult movie. I think the power comes from being willing to make a kid's movie that is about these things and, and treating them with enough respect to understand it. Yeah.
2: Which leaves a question mark for the sequel because she's going to be turning 13 and they got that big puberty button on the board. Right. So where is that going to go?
1: It could be interesting, but we'll see.
2: Yeah, I'll see it, of course. But, you know, sure. as long as it doesn't suck, that's all I ask. But the number one film on my list is perhaps the only film that Pixar has made that is flat out. For adults, mm-hmm. not for kids, not for families. This is a movie for adults, flat yeah. out.
1: The two stands that we've mentioned, Wally and Finding Nemo, are there, but they're family movies for sure. Right. They're pretty mature. Number two would probably be The Incredibles, which is a family movie, but just has a lot of adult stuff going on in it.
2: Mm-hmm. This is the one that's just, I don't explain how a kid would like this movie one bit.
1: I mean, I saw it when I was a teenager, so I never had to work that out.
2: <laughs> <laughs> this one is number one also for a nostalgic reason for me, because when I saw it, I was a couple of months away from turning 10. Yeah. Of course, I had seen movies for adults beforehand, but this was the first time that I saw an animated movie and I could tell that it was for adults and that it was aiming much higher and that it wanted me to meet it as an audience member on that level, which i respected and still do to this very day. Enough of all that. Let's just cut right to it. My number one is Ratatouille.
1: Mr. Bird.
2: (laughs) Again. My boy. This is set in modern-day France. It's about a rat named Remy, voiced by Patton Altwalt. He's a complete booty. He lives out with his family, a big old colony of rats. (laughs) Love
1: that choice. Just so disgusting.
2: The scene where they all fall from the ceiling. Ah! Yeah. But he dreams of one day becoming a great chef. They all live in this old lady's house and she's watching Chef Gusteau on TV all the time. And he's like the great chef of Paris. To others, he would be as great as Monsieur Boyardee. But he experiments all day. He goes into the kitchen. He grabs stuff, constantly creating new flavor combos. And one day they're discovered by the old lady who just pulls out a shotgun and just starts shooting everything in sight. <laughs> They're forced to flee. He runs away, gets separated from his family and the sewers, and he ends up in Paris, right across from Gusteau's restaurant. And at this point in time, he has discovered that Gusteau is dead, which means that the restaurant has lost one of its stars after losing another star earlier from a particularly savage review from the critic Anton Ego, voiced by the great Peter O'Toole in one of his, not last performance, but, you know, towards the end. Which means that the restaurant, which used to be a five-star establishment, only has free, and it is on rocky ground. At the same time, the restaurant is visited by Linguini, voiced by Lou Romano, this young kid in desperate need of a job because his mother just passed away. And he does not know this, but he is the son of Gusteau. Big old threat to Chef Skinner, who runs the restaurant, voiced by Ian Holm. Remy gets into the restaurant and starts getting a little fancy with the spices and one of the soups after Linguini accidentally knocks something into it and messes it up. But he ends up making a great soup enough to earn the praise of a critic eating there hey, maybe we should give Linguini a chance and let him learn how to cook. And that's all voiced by Colette, voiced by Ginny Garofalo, who is, you know, the toughest chef in that kitchen. You know, you cannot be mommy. (laughs) And so Linguini is learning about becoming a chef. He's being controlled by Remy, who was the actual cook. Linguini can't cook for shit. But if Remy just pulls the right pieces of hair, he can control Linguini and, you know, get to live out his fantasy of being a chef. And all of this spirals out into this question of, where does great art come from? Can it come from anybody? Gusteau's old saying, anyone can cook. What does that really mean? Who gets to create the great art?
1: Mm -hmm. For me, this lands just below Inside Out and Toy Story, which I was just talking about, all the way up in third place. This Mm -hmm. knocked me out when I first saw it. Head over heels in love with it. Still am. Mm -hmm. It is such a blessing in some ways. To have Twitter and Letterboxd and all the different social media apps that help bring me together with people who also appreciate it. Because when I was younger, no one I knew gave a fuck about this movie. Everybody had gotten too old. It's not as funny and as great of a kid's movie as like a Toy Story is. But what a tender and beautiful and so exciting in so many visual ways. Mm Brad Bird. That's my thesis at the end of the day.
2: The scene when Remy goes into the kitchen for the first time and the camera is moving along with him as he's trying to escape. Yeah, this is why you made Tom Cruise climb up that skyscraper. Like
1: 100%. <laughs> Wonderful characters. Patton Oswalt might be the best protagonist yeah. in Pixar. Honestly. It's him and Hanks Woody. Yeah. I would say would be my one two punch. Anton Ego might be the only side character that can really step to Ed
2: Mode. Yeah, in my absolutely.
1: Movies? that include critic characters, usually botch it. Yeah. Shouts to Birdman, probably the most famous <laughs> contemporary example there.
0: Uh,
2: absolutely the weak link of that movie.
1: Or like M. Night Shyamalan putting the critic into Lady in the Water.
2: Oh god, or Emmerich's Roger and Ebert stand-ins in Godzilla.
1: It just becomes a means of clapping back at people who didn't like your work. Mm-hmm. Particularly at people who didn't like your bad work (laughs) in many cases is kind of the problem with them. Usually the critics that they're mocking have a point. Mm -hmm. And I think what's so great here with Ego is that the movie treats him like a real person with real flaws and a real character arc Mm -hmm. while digging into things that, for me, I'm not a critic, certainly not a professional one, but we rate review movies all the time. We're sitting here doing it right now.
2: And I've done my own work as a critic, you know, in the past between publications at the moment, but I know what it's like to do this.
1: Don't you keep this character in mind sometimes?
2: All the time. Every single time.
1: Yeah. I have a little bit of fun teasing about Wally. You have a little bit of fun teasing about a Godzilla minus one. Like we play off of each other. But what this character reminds you and what the movie reminds you is that there are always people, you know, you're in a restaurant. They're feeding, they are nourishing. They have taken this food from the earth and prepared it with care for you to eat. Mm-hmm. And it's just remembering that every creative expression, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether you're critiquing it, whether you're praising it, comes from a human place yeah. and that you need to have a respect for that in order to have a respect for writing, in order to have a respect for food or art or anything.
2: I think about Eco's review of Remy's cooking in this movie all the time.
1: Mm. This movie actually prompted me as a teenager to learn how to cook, Ratatouille.
2: (laughs) Must have been a bit of a shock when you realize that the original recipe is not quite what's going on here.
1: Yeah, no, um, (laughs) not at all. I actually certainly never made it quite the way that he does with all the sliced up and like laid out so beautifully. And it's more like pot of veggies.
2: I tried. The slicing was too thick, but you know, not bad.
1: I've made it a few times. It's good. Mm -hmm. Came out when I was in high school and was in French class. I actually watched this in a French class one time, the French dub of it. (laughs) Came out at a point where I thought that like Parisian culture seemed cool.
2: <laughs> as someone who likes to dunk on french people all the time they did cook a little bit here even though it was yeah. made by americans
1: you know it's like this in the french dispatch maybe our romantic feelings about paris really translate <laughs> to the cinema yeah
2: the dichotomy of that relationship between Linguini, who can't cook, but is able to live out this fantasy of success, and Remy, who can cook, but can't do it without hiding behind a human, is really fascinating. Mm. There's the limitations, you know, like Remy's father, Django, who's voiced by Brian Dennehy, whatever. A- return also. For sure. Takes him in the middle of the night in the rain, and then you see, like, all the traps, and you see the dead rodents and all that. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's just this reminder of the emotional conflict of this movie. Yeah. Is that Remy wants to create great art and can, but how can he present it? And how to he heard by them?
1: Kind of mentioned Birdman, now I'm thinking about Bardo, where it's, like, what it means to be an artist who creates for a world that's hostile to you, Mm -hmm. not only as an artist by the critics, but like hostile to your nature. You know, you're not part of this world, which is being represented here by like a literal rat. But it's why do you cook? Remy wants to cook because it's like a personal expression of himself and of his skills. But you're never not cooking for someone. Someone at the end of the day is going to eat what you're talking about. I think using the rats is a cool way to kind of break into this idea too of consumption. Mm -hmm. Like a rat just eating trash. just like, oh yeah, any old thing. Versus the care and quality that's Mm -hmm. put into a meal is a nice way to explore that. I love the character's faults in this, too. Um, I'm always taken by Linguini being kind of useless. He really is. He has good qualities as a person, but none of them are really like he's not a good employee. He's not a good leader. He lies a lot. Necessarily, the basis of this movie is a lie, but I think that it gets into character's bad decision making and their flaws, mm-hmm. it wouldn't feel that crazy if we were talking about a 2010s French drama, right. but it is when you're talking about a Pixar movie. Mm-hmm.
2: It's incredibly real the way that people react to things in this. He has that rallying moment where he tries to get everyone to stay and cook after he explains everything with Remy, and everybody walks out. Yeah. The only person who comes back is Colette.
1: Right. Who's pissed at him. Right. Who probably has the most reason to dislike him. Mm-hmm. That's a great character and performance.
2: She's incredible. Like the whole montage of her training him is just hilarious.
1: Mm-hmm. This is also, I think you even nodded Ratatouille when we were talking about the taste of things. As someone who spent six years working in a kitchen, mm-hmm. I love it. I never worked in a kitchen like this. You know, I never worked in the official <laughs> and three-star restaurant. But just anything kitchen culture mm-hmm. is usually a winner for me. Anything that's sort of like prepping food is usually a winner for me. Yeah. And then this uncorks. Brad Bird's insane pinball style, which takes a real master to take you around the kitchen and pilot it like a pro. And that's exactly what Brad Bird does with this movie. Mm -hmm.
2: The way the camera moves around this oh environment <laughs> it's better shot and blocked than like 99 like yeah it's the cream of the crop
1: i mean it's better shot blocked than mission impossible ghost protocol yeah <laughs> which brad bird also directed like,
2: <laughs> it's a testament to his skills
1: i love him as a director my favorite of his is the iron giant which i've mentioned a couple times here i would put this second And I was having to grapple with this because I watched both Ratatouille and The Incredibles yesterday. I'm a big Ghost Protocol fan, like a devotee, an acolyte, a worshiper. These two movies are just like, they make some of that look pedestrian and Tom Cruise is really hanging off of a building and this is animation, but it's just so fucking expert.
2: They blow him out of the water.
1: I'd love it. (laughs) This just feels like such an unheralded gem. I don't know. Maybe you have a different feeling. Do you feel like people have kind of come around on this as being one of Pixar's great movies?
2: I feel like they have. Well-reviewed at the time. It was financially successful despite their concerns about it. They were like, who the hell wants to go see a movie about a rat? And won the Oscar for animated feature as well, which kickstarted a tidal wave of those for them because they had won before. You know, they had one for Monsters Inc., they had one for The Incredibles, right. and then it was like, okay, Pixar, 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 Pixar. It just kicked that trend off of just handing it to the studio automatically every year. Yeah, I think maybe as people get older, at least people in my generation hold this movie very close to them. Yeah. I think because it was that first like really animated, but it's 100% for adults and it's asking the viewer to meet it at that level. I think there's a little bit of respect there. And I think a lot of people find it relatable for, you know, about pursuing your passion, even when it's reckless to do so. Mm -hmm. And how do you balance that with a life and with the family? It's earned a lot of respect over the years to the point where even Disney as like an entity is realizing how valuable this is.
1: I think Letterboxd can be a little bit of an imperfect means of figuring out how popular something is or how well rated something is Mm -hmm. because the users of that website are people like us. Yeah, Letterboxd is going to rate Charlie Kaufman higher than most other just like average people will. Because mm-hmm. the aesthetic and thematic concerns are something that really appeal to for
2: people. reasons I'll never comprehend.
1: It's fucking like internet loner shit. <laughs> Aspirational creatives, like people who want to write or people who want to make movies, who spend a lot of their time immersed in this world, I think do develop a warmth and a true love of movies that deal with that in an interesting way. Yeah. Here's what strikes me when I was a kid, Toy Story 2, top of the heap, like everybody's favorite shit. That has 1.6 million logs and a 3.9 average rating on Letterboxd, which seems crazy low to me. Ratatouille, 2.5 million logs, so almost a million more logs. Wow. 4.2 average rating. Not only much more seen, but much higher rated. Toy Story 2 that seemed crazy. I had no idea. I really was asking that in honest, have people come around on this way? And if you go by Letterboxd, they have resoundingly done so.
2: If you sort by film popularity, it's their most popular film on the site. It's
1: the number one. Yeah. It's also their highest rated. So it's Ratatouille, then Wally e then the original Toy Story by rating. Mm. I had no idea that this had been elevated like that. I always considered this not like a hot take exactly, but just sort of a personal favorite more than like a canon favorite. But shit here we are yeah i guess yeah
2: this one and like the years since has been elevated to that status
1: gorgeous movie Giacchino once again Mm -hmm. that man maybe
2: my favorite score of his
1: i think so for me as well he also did up which i really like a lot Mm -hmm. and obviously incredibles which we talked about yeah inside out which is my favorite so he's really kind of uh right up there for me as long as we don't think about spider-man or jojo rabbit (laughs) or thor love and thunder Uh. you know well, these Pixar efforts really are like his great contribution,
2: I mm-hmm, think. Absolutely.
1: Often built around themes that can be simple but rousing, just very stirring.
2: For me, this is just like the peak of what the studio could do.
1: 100%. It arrives right at the tail end of their era of complete creative dominance and wonderful output before the 2010s would kick in, so it shows you what they're like at their technical apex in many many ways with a director who uses 3d in a more innovative thrilling way mm-hmm. than basically any other director i can think of yeah. wonderful cast of characters subtle nuanced. I, I, what can you say man <laughs> this is amazing <laughs> this is an amazing movie
2: it's good shit good shit
1: and that pretty much wraps us i think that's the pixar canon sorry to the coco fans for not shouting that one out. Yeah,
2: love it, but not quite.
1: It's always been more of a like for me. It tilts it back, and it feels like that one really was for that next generation. You know, Mm -hmm. Younger kids movie, happened once I'm an adult already. Just kind of like, it's good, looks really nice.
2: That feels like that'll be a classic someday in the eyes of everyone.
1: For sure. While I tout Inside Out as the top of their 2010s, probably most people would put Coco in that spot. Mm -hmm. But a great collection of movies Who knows what the future is going to hold for them, or if they'll ever quite capture the magic... I don't think that they're as lost as Disney is. No. They've hit a patch where they need to figure out how to build an audience back up. Mm -hmm. And maybe it'll never be Incredibles, Ratatouille, Toy Story, all that again. But remains to be seen. They still got talent.
2: They do. But it's that how do you live thing again about Mm -hmm. they built this empire with this very specific group of people. And, you know, eventually one by one, they'll all fade away Mm -hmm. and they won't have talent on the same level as them. But, you know, you just got to reconcile with that.
1: I remember when Wally was coming out, and they were talking about the concept of Wally being one of the last of an original set of ideas that had mm-hmm. all been conceived by the same group of people at the same time,
2: right during a lunch.
1: And it's not that you've run out of ideas; it's that you need to have your second lunch. Yeah, you need to go back to the drawing board with your new talents, with a new era, and a new audience, and start over. Because that's really what it is. You don't have to start over technically. You still have this powerhouse animation studio behind you and great talents and a a sterling reputation, basically. right. Even with the misses and the box office failures of late, still pretty much the gold standard. We'll see. But it's been really, really great to get to revisit a few of these, to get to talk about all of them, to close out another year of podcasting. I cannot wait to edit all however many hours of this we just talked.
2: And we've been going for like... Four and a half, ah, which, you Jesus. know what? It's shorter than the Disney episode.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see how long it comes out in the wash. This has been really fun. Any closing thoughts on yours? Just,
2: It was fun to revisit these. It's a very valuable studio to me, you know, because I grew up on these. So it's always nice to revisit something that was at its peak when you were a kid. For sure. and it just felt like that they were at the top of their game as a studio and just creating the best art.
1: So that pretty much closes the book on us for not just this Pixar episode, but for the year 2023, when we come back, I believe the first thing that we're going to be talking about is our favorite first watches of the year 2023, Mm -hmm. movies that Cole and I saw for the first time, not new releases, but older films. So that'll be a nice little eclectic spread of things to get to dig in and discuss and reflect back on the great year of movies that we watched Mm -hmm. later in the month, probably sometime after... January 5th or 12th, or whenever the fuck Jonathan Glazer (laughs) arrives in Texas, we're going to have to get together and talk about our favorite new releases, our favorite movies of 2023. So that's what we've got packed in store for January. I'm sure that we will have many, many more new things after the new year.
0: Yeah, there we go.
1: So stay tuned. Thank you guys all so much for listening. Have a great rest of your day. Happy New Year. Get the hell out of here. Bye.
0: (laughs) Ciao.